Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. I wanted to announce a very big event happening in the summer of 2022. I want to give you this information now in the wintertime so that you have time to prepare for this because this is a big deal. The 2022 Global Bushcraft Symposium has been announced. It is going to be happening from July 27th to the 31st of July in the year 2022. It is being co-chaired by Lisa Fenton and Paul Kirtley, names that you should be well aware of, folks, especially if you're all into the bushcraft world. Speakers are including Dr. Teresa Camper, Bruce Zawalski, Gordon Dedman, ba- Patrick McGlinchey, and Rupert Brown. These are these and many others are why I'm excited. These are some of the greatest brains of today when it comes down to woodcraft, survival, indigenous ancestral skills, anything you can think of in the realm of bushcraft, it is happening at this event. And it's happening in Wales, United Kingdom in July 27th to the 31st in the year 2022. So pack your stuff up now, get it all ready, get your passport in order, get all the stuff you need in order, because this is going to be a very big event, very, very big event that I am excited to be going to with Rye the Adventure Guy. We may even record a few podcasts with some folks while we're there. Hope to see you there this coming summer from July 27th to July, uh, July 31st. If you want to learn more, go to www.globalbushcraftsymposium2022.com. Again, www dot global bushcraft symposium 2022.com to know the landscape is to open up a door to feel deeper connected than you've ever felt before we know that you will love this podcast so shut your mouth and listen to Canadian Bushcraft. Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. This is the Canadian Bushcraft Podcast, Hunter's Journey segment of this episode. And I've got Chris Gilmore from the Hunter's Journey on the line. We're here to talk about a little bit of stuff to help you during the wintertime to prepare yourself for the hunting season coming up. And that is winter tracking and trail camera prep for the hunting season. So stuff that you should be getting ready now that it's cold and snowy, hopefully snowy, uh, to get ready for this coming fall and this coming spring's hunting seasons. So Chris, you want to talk about that? You want to dive into this yourself or do you want me to uh, start rambling on my own? Sure. No, I can start off a little bit. Please. Uh, I mean, developing your tracking skills are so, so essential to becoming a skilled hunter. And they also just bring a ton of enjoyment to the wintertime. You know, even for folks that aren't into hunting, learning to track, it just adds so many layers to like building relationship with the, the land, getting to the wildlife. It's one of the things I look forward to the most. And, you know, sometimes people want to throw something at me when I say like, man, winter is one of my favorite seasons. Um, but a big part of it is like, you know, if you think about it this way, every time it snows, the, the whole forest basically becomes a blank canvas or a blank book, let's say, an empty page in a book. And as the wildlife travel across it, they basically write the story. And as a tracker, you can learn to read that story so well that you get to know the intricate details of the lives of these animals. Uh, how fast are they moving? Which way was their head going? Where are they sleeping? Um, what do they do when they come across different things? So it basically allows you this glimpse into the, the lives of the animals in such a beautiful and intricate way. Um, and the more that you, I learn about tracking and the more that I experience others do, it just becomes more and more fascinating. So winter is a great time to get out and really push your tracking skills and learn to track. And if you're a hunter, of course, this is a great time to go out and do reconnaissance and really get to know about the animals in the regions that you go out and hunt. 
Uh, and there's a, there's a few parts that are valuable for that. I mean, one aspect of that is from a stewardship perspective, when you're out there tracking, you get to have a, a really realistic idea of like the actual animal populations in the area um, to know like how sustainable is it to be hunting in here? And, you know, our populations going up, are they going down? Are they staying the same? Am I seeing similar tracks now to what I've seen in the past? So that's really, really valuable. Um, and then the other part of it is like getting to know the individual animals on the land. And as a, I, I don't necessarily think about this with like turkey hunting um, or rabbit hunting for that matter, but with deer hunting, like some of the spots that I've been hunting for 10 years now, like I know the family lineages of the deer and I'll see a deer this year. I passed a bunch of shots where I literally had a deer come in. I'm like, ah, I know your mom or I know your grandma, you know, I know your grandpa. I know who that is. <laughs> and that's such a beautiful level of connection with the land. But it also allows, you know, if you're targeting specific animals, like if you want to be like, I'm hard looking for a larger doe or a larger buck this year, uh, the winter is the perfect time to figure out, okay, what bucks are around? What does are around? Where are they moving? Things of that nature. Um, and, you know, those patterns might change a little bit in the, uh, the fall time, but winter is just a great idea to time to assess who's around. And, you know, just one really short story. I was out, um, there's this big ridge that I've been hunting uh, this year, and it's kind of a new area for me. And I knew there was this one big buck that was moving around there. Uh, I'd been following his rub line. Uh, I'd seen his tracks quite a few times, um, but I just couldn't really pattern in on how he was moving on and off of this ridge. Um, and we didn't have much snow this winter, so I didn't really have any snow to work. So I was able to find, I was basically able to track him in the leaves. Um, but I went out there just over a week ago and sure enough, I was able to find kind of the main corridors that that buck is coming on and off of this ridge from. So now I've got a better idea next season where to potentially set up on this ridge to have a better shot at this buck and some of the other deer coming in and off of this ridge. So the wintertime basically creates this awesome opportunity for, for recon at our tracking spots. Totally. It's, it's an amazing you can, and you, you can speak about this more than I can, but you can track all year round. But when it comes to wintertime, it's like standing on a beach of perfect material to see tracks on. It's just so easy. It's one of the easiest times of years to learn tracking as, as well. So if you're a newcomer to hunting, going out right now and tracking the properties that you're expecting to go for turkey or for deer it's going to help you open your eyes a lot sooner with a lot more success rate on the tracking skills. And as you continue that into the spring, into the summer by fall, you're, you're not necessarily a, like a, you're not necessarily an old sourdough to the skill, but you're definitely a novice. You understand what to be looking for when you're seeing those tracks on the ground. So it's really a good learning time now to be getting into tracking in my opinion. And yeah. With that, with when it comes down to tracking, this is uh, and observing the environment. This is also a great time of year to be setting up your trail cameras and getting spots ready for trail cameras in the areas that you're going to be hunting. And trail cameras, to me, are kind of like a modern extension of tracking. I think they're really, really useful tools. I know a lot of people that are kind of purists when it comes down to hunting. They don't like the idea of having all these newfangled gadgets out there. I look at the trail camera the same way I look at it as a GPS to my compass. I still have my compass. I still have my maps, but I like having that GPS as a backup and something that gives me a little bit more broader view of what's going on. You may not be fully aware. You may be fully aware of I'm seeing deer tracks and I'm seeing a lot of deer tracks, but that may not give you all the answers. That may have been simply deer coming back and forth on the same trails multiple times. That could have been a small family 
instead of it being a huge herd of deer that you think it looks like. Sometimes in a single night, deer can follow the same path two or three times in a row, looking for different, you know, morsels or looking for different bedding spots. And therefore, a trail camera can give you a chance to be like, oh, no, that is the same deer. Oh, that buck that, that I, I definitely saw a buck track. But now I can see that there's actually two or three bucks. And that one's really prime looking. And that one's looking really young. Now I know what I can start preparing for. And I'm not going to take that young one, but I can definitely take that big old buck. Or all those other little details that we can only start to learn with tracking. And you got to get to like Chris's level before you can really start to identify every single nuance of those tracks it's really a useful tool for those that especially that are newcomers but also us folks that have been hunting for decades it's a useful tool to have i've got at least four if not five set up almost year round where i hunt deer just because it gives me a whole lot of different insights throughout the whole season yeah you get to know the individual animals out there Mm -hmm. which you know even just from a relationship with the land and a naturalist perspective it's so neat um because you can go out and use your, your tracking skills to say, okay, I think this is a larger buck, or I think this is a doe, or I think this is like a family of three moving through. The trail cam can actually confirm whether you are right or not in your, your uh, tracking hypothesis. The other thing that I think is really important about getting them out in the off season. Now, I know some hunters that keep their trail cams up year round, um, mm-hmm. and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I like to be a ghost. And, and what you'll learn as you get into hunting, there's different styles and strategies And it's not that there are different ones are right or wrong. Different people just come up with like their unique strategy, their tactics, their approach. And my approach is to be a ghost in the woods. You know, I try to leave as little presence as possible. So I actually pull my trail cams out of the bush during the hunting season because putting a trail cam in there, every time I set it up, touch it, I'm leaving smell there. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I'm setting up new ones, you know, uh, the smarter, older animals, like they notice trail cams, you know, I've watched deer change their patterns based on me having my trail cams up. So having them up in the off season allows me to get a lot of intel out of season as to who's around, where they're moving, what animals are there. And then once the season starts, I actually pull them out to decrease my presence. But now I've got all the intel I need for that area to go back in and track. Um, I'm sure I'm curious if you've had any thoughts on brands. I mean, there's all kinds of brands from what I can tell. A lot of them are fairly similar. Um, I've kind of started using the stealth cams. Uh, I've got three different models of stealth cams now, and I'm, I'm quite happy with them. So uh, I've kind of just decided to to kind of stick with that brand myself. But do you have a brand that you prefer? Stealth Cam, Stealth Cam is a great brand. Um, I'm a real big fan of getting the trail cam that fits your the best one that fits your budget. Um, first off, it, on the note of like trying to be a ghost, there's the option for trail cameras that have solar panels and cell phone uplinks, so you actually don't have to go near that trail camera for almost the rest of the year because it's not loading up a, a memory card that you've got to pull out and swap out and batteries you got to change because the solar panel just keeps charging as long as you know it doesn't get covered in snow and the all the information is going to the cloud so you can access that with your phone and so i like those i think those are a great option those are not inexpensive those are fairly costly tools and they've got to have, and sometimes with that uplink system you have to actually put in a program and pay into almost like a phone plan for that not all the time but usually yes uh my favorite ones it's really weird to say this ape man one word a-p-e-m-a-n i found them on amazon like two years ago didn't think much of it. i was like nah they're gonna probably need to get batteries swapped a lot and they're probably not gonna have the best footage and they're probably not gonna have the best memory even if i put a good card in them because some of them have a limitation like yeah you might have a 126 gig memory card but it won't allow anything past 32 gig for some reason, some of them have that. 
And so I wasn't expecting much from them. We have not changed the batteries yet. The battery there, and they're just simple. I think like Duracells or energizers, nothing fancy. They've been in there for two whole seasons, full years, not just two seasons, two full years. And we swap out the memory cards maybe once a month, maybe every couple of months. I actually forgot they were out there and I couldn't get out to the property for three months of last year. And when we came back, I had 9,000 photographs to go through because it was just out there and it was still clicking along and taking every shot. So Ape Man has been really good for me for how I hunt and how I do stuff. Um, and like that, they were out there in minus 30 and they were doing well. They're out there in extreme heat and they were doing well. They're out there in extreme rain, extreme cold, extreme sleet. And they never gave us any real problems. And so I'm a big fan of the eight man simply because of the cost. I think they were like $45 a pop. And so I saved up $160, $170 and I bought four of them in one go. And they've got my entire property that I hunt figured out for me. And it was really cool because up until then, we kind of knew there were turkey there. I had a couple of harassment moments where I was out deer hunting and I had this Tom Turkey like trying to front me and like get right up on me and like put out his feathers on that do that like like that challenging cluck that they do and i've got a rifle so i'm not going to be shooting this turkey so we knew there were turkey on the property and then we put out trail cameras near where we had seen turkey coming onto the property and i did not realize how many turkey were on this property we were counting when they were flying down from their roost every shot we ended up counting 37 turkey in this one group, which is like not a huge number for Ontario, but it was a huge number for this particular property to see 37 individual birds. That was absolutely unexpected. And I would not have gotten that from their tracks. I got that from the trail camera. I'd seen their tracks all year round and kept assuming, yeah, probably about a dozen, 37 Turkey. <laughs> That's a crazy number for when I thought there was like just a dozen, like maybe 10 or 12. So eight man, uh, A-P-E-M-A-N were the, were, are the trail cameras that I'm running and they're doing really well for me. Yeah. Once you get, once people get an eye on a trail cam they want, or even a couple of brands, then the other one, if you're not in a hurry, just watch for sales. Cause I don't, I, I almost always buy my trail cams for at least 40%, sometimes 50% off. Mm -hmm. Cause I just watch throughout the year. Uh, I go to Canadian tire and a couple other stores and uh, whenever I see them on sale, I just pick another one up. So totally. that's a great one. One gadget I want to get next year to upgrade my trail cam setup. Uh, a buddy of mine showed me this this year and he has a little uh, card, a reader uh, on his phone uh, for the micro SD cards. So one of the things that I find really challenging is often I'll go to check my trail cam pictures. It's like, oh, I forgot to bring a new card. So now I have to pull the trail cam down or take the card out and it's not active. But he just goes up to his trail cam, pulls the card out, uploads the photos to his phone, sticks the card back in and then carries on and then yep. you don't miss a beat with it. So I want to get one of those uploaders. Unfortunately, I don't remember the brand, uh, but I'm, I'm pretty pumped to get one of those for this season. I, I thought I was being really clever and I bought us a spy point memory card uh, reader. So it's this little thing that almost looks like the old like Nintendo DS things from like the two, early 2000s. And I thought I was real clever. I could just put the card in and take up all the information and then move on to the next one and collect them and be able to view through. First off, it's the most analog machine I have used in a decade. You have to look at, you can't just look at all the photos at once and like screen, choose them and tap on the screen. You've got to use a little tall and go left, 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 <laughs> left, 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 left for an hour and a half. But also 
it doesn't have internal memory. So you can't just upload like you were describing to the phone. I have to put the card in and go through all of them right there and then delete them manually one by one and then put the memory card back in. It was the worst purchase I've made for hunting gear in a long while because it did not make my life any easier. Everything I could do with that card reader, I could have just done with the trail camera itself. And so now what I do is I, I, I do the the old fashioned switch out cards like you were just describing. But I, if you can find the brand for that card reader that goes onto your phone, I would love to know that because that was, when you told me about that, I was like, that is a game changer. That can fix so many problems. So I'm just going to open up our notes one last time. If my phone will let me come on, open up. There we go. So when it comes down to tracking and, and, and observing the wildlife, some certain things that you were added to the list of things that you want to learn about this time of year with hunting from the eyes of a tracker, uh, get to know what animals in your area, get to know what animals you have in your area and their general populations. That's the, the big selling point for both of us as hunters with these trail cameras and for tracking is figuring out what animals are there and how many and what they look like and everything like that. And into that, you added as well, ungulate, find signs from last year's ruts. So let's talk about that. What kind of things are we looking for from the eyes sure, of a tracker yeah. when it comes down to white-tailed deer or moose or elk? What things are they leaving on the, yeah, well, on the landscape during, for us? Yeah, right. So often during the hunting season, we want to be careful how much we're actually moving around the bush and exploring because we just don't want to be spooking animals. We don't want to be laying down scent. Uh, so we're often very strategic in the way that we move through the woods. Uh, but as we're hunting, we start to form these theories. It's like, oh, I think that, you know, I think the bucks are bedding down over here or the deer are bedding down over here. Um, so uh, at the, in the wintertime is the perfect time to go ground truth that, you know, go walk into those suspected bedding areas and see, okay, are there signs that the deer are bedding in here? Um, you know, was I right about that? And then the other one is like looking for signs of antler rubs and ground scrapes, any signs from the actual mating season. Um, if you just go out again, I'm in the fall, I'm hesitant to just push as much ground as possible, uh, unless that's the hunting strategy that I'm using. But generally, that's not my strategy. Um, I'm being very strategic. I'm trying to kind of guess where I think things are going to be based on past year's signs. Yeah. Uh, and I'm trying to move like a ghost in and out of there. But once the season is over, I just want to cover as much ground as possible and try and find those new tree rubs, those uh, antler rubs, scrapes, things of that nature. Uh, and again, I was just out the other day tracking at the property where I actually harvested my deer this year, but I went and walked through an area in the bedding area that I hadn't gone through the whole season. I stayed out of on purpose and I found this rub line across it that I've never seen there before. You know, I've been hunting this property for 10 years and I've never seen a rub line on this one part of the property. So next year uh, in the spring, I'll probably actually go and set up a spot either to get up in a tree or on the ground on that rub line or close to it. Um, and then get out there and, and be able to hunt there in the early part of the rut and see if anything's moving around through there. So uh, yeah, it's a good time of year to pattern in when, well, that sign is still fresh, the antler rubs, the ground scrapes, um, and to go and verify the bedding areas, you know, where are they actually bedding down? Cause that's so key uh, to setting yourself up in the right spot. Totally. And as the, as the winter continues, this is also the time of year where, you know, into February is when the antlers start getting dropped. And so if you're really lucky during one of those spring, uh, those, you know, late seasons thaws, go down to creek beds where you're going to be seeing a lot of tracks anyway, some animals trying to get to that easy accessible water. And often on those creeks, when they hop over, they knock their antlers loose just from the jarring effect of jumping. 
you may find some antlers that can give you even more insight. Maybe your trail camera didn't pick up the fact that there's an eight point buck on that property. And here, lo and behold, is an antler with four tines on it. Oh my God, we have an eight point on this property. Now I've got to start figuring out where that one's going. Maybe I should start tracking that deer and everything else. So not just uh, like as Chris was saying, we have those late, uh, those uh, end of the fall season, the rut season signs of scrapes and rubs. But there's also other sign that can be continuing throughout that season through this time. You can see a lot of track, as Chris was saying, there's a lot of tracks that can get picked up by the snow. You're going to start seeing where their trails are, where their tracks are, uh, where their, their highways are. On our property that we hunt here, we have the QEW and the 401 are two of our nicknames for two of the main trails that we have found throughout the year where you will see what looks like a highway of deer have come through that property. And it may only be half a dozen deer, but they are so thoroughly using that trail that it looks like it's just tracked down by a herd. Um, and those moments are going to really help you discern your property as, as, and make yourself a better hunter, or at least a more successful hunter in different directions, whether that's success in the fact that you actually got an animal like Chris did this year. Congrats again for that, by the way, that was like, you were like just at the very edge of season end of season when you got that deer, that was an incredible story. When you shared that, we might have to share that later on in the, on the podcast at some point, but that was a phenomenal hunt that you had. And that's a great success. And there's also the great success of knowing what animals are on your property. So when we start, again, when we started using actual trail cameras where I hunt, at first we thought maybe there's like a little spike horn on the property. We weren't seeing much sign of, of actual visual confirmation when we were there of any actual bucks. And since we started using trail cameras in the last two years, we're, we realized that we actually have three bucks on the property. One's an eight point, one's a six point. And one's a spike horn who this year has now got a prong horn. He's got two antler tines on each antler. So this is giving us a lot of insight for the future. And I still, even though we didn't bag a deer this year, I consider that a success because now we know more about the deer where we're hunting. We know more about the turkey where we're hunting. And we know more about the wildlife in general because of tracking in different forms, whether it's tracking from their tracks, tracking from their spoor of any kind, scat, rubs, scrapes, you name it, feeding, browse. Um, amazing amount of browse we noticed this year, which meant that the deer were having more than just corn to eat, which was kind of nice. Uh, but also with those modern tools like trail cameras, if you have uh, the license and you have the ability to use a drone, there's nothing saying that in the off season, you can't, you know, scan the property with a drone and check out everything from the sky. Now the canopy is missing on a lot of those hardwoods. You can really get a good view of what the deer are doing in broad daylight. Maybe you'll find a bed that you didn't realize was there that time of year. So now in, in Canada, at least in Ontario, drones are not to be used during hunting season. I want to make that clear. You're not allowed to actually use them to assist you on hunting. I had to look that up a couple of years ago when we first got started getting drones into Canadian bushcraft, but you can use them off season to be scouting the area. It helps you with your duck hunting. It helps you with your deer hunting. So it's just another little tool in your toolkit. Um, but always lean back on those traditional skills of tracking because that's where you're going to really get into the I often refer to it as like the window into an animal's soul is tracking. You really get to see where the deer are moving, what the animal's doing and what they're even thinking sometimes, depending on how they move. So on that, anything else we want to add before we uh, close up this segment? No, I think that's, that's, uh, that's quite a bit there. Um, yeah. So for those that are curious to learn more about hunting, you could check out www.thehuntersjourney.com. There's a wait list currently, and you can log in and register for the wait list. 
Uh, Chris, you want to dive more into what the Hunter's Journey is before we sign off? Sure. The Hunter's Journey is a, a private mentoring community that Caleb and I and a, a whole host of other um, experienced hunters host together. So there's a whole bunch of pre-recorded material, there's workbooks, there's checklists to get you started. And then we do uh, monthly calls, uh, live calls, um, where we basically help you go from wherever you are right now, total beginner or new hunter, um, and work through all of the logistics that you need to actually be able to become a skilled, successful hunter that's able to hunt in a way that's sustainable and harvest good, healthy meat to uh, feed your family and feel good about it. So huntersjourney.com. Um, if you want to be part of our exclusive mentoring community and, and learn how to make this part of your lifestyle. Uh, I also mentioned to folks that if you want to learn tracking this winter, I also have another course called Nature's Language. And oh, if yes. you go to www.learnnaturelanguage.com, um, same kind of deal. Uh, we have a whole bunch of pre-recorded material. We have workbooks, but then we also have monthly calls as well. Uh, where that's not focused on hunting. It's not focused on any one species. It's just the art of tracking, being able to read the stories uh, written in the animal's footprints and get a glimpse into their soul, as Caleb said. Uh, and for Dragonfly Nation, if you put in DF Nation, so Dragonfly DF Nation uh, at checkout in the coupon code spot, you'll get $100 off that course. So, Oh, right on. Excellent. Well, on that note, thank you for joining us today, Chris. I really appreciate you coming in for these segments with me. It's always a good time, a good chance for us to catch up and have a good talk. Uh, thank you for all your insights. Hopefully, hopefully everybody enjoyed this segment of the podcast. Now let's get back to the rest of the show. All right, folks, we are at the body of this podcast episode. We've gone through our couple of cool little segments that we've added on for this year. And now we're here to talk about the subject of this episode, and that is toboggans, pulks, sleds, generally the things you're dragging behind you to bring all your gear with you into the winter wonderland of winter camping. And of course, since we're talking about trekking, we're talking about winter camping, I gotta have Rye the Adventure Guy here with me, my good, dear co-host. So Rye has been putting together a really good presentation, conversation pieces, some notes for this episode. I'd say notes, not necessarily... Yeah. Presentation. Fair enough. I figured you and me have, I have a like... slideshow, but you guys don't see that right now. <laughs> we'll keep that one for the Patreon. Yeah. We'll keep that for the Patreon. Um, but yeah, Ryan's been doing some good work getting this together, making sure we have a good, you know, conversation. And I'm just gonna be kind of putting in my tidbits of information throughout things that I know, things that I've experienced. So this is kind of today's kind of like the Rye show, and I'm just here to kind of be his Chewbacca to his Han Solo pressures on there. I wasn't <laughs> expecting this, that I'd be the front and center TED Talk style. So uh, on that note, the point of sleds, toboggans, pulks, whatever sledges, Comatex, whatever it may be, is a, a vehicle to carry the gear for you. So it's not necessarily on your back. Um, we often talk about like weight reduction for backpacking. It becomes even more critical when you're doing long treks in deep snow or really icy terrain where you need a little bit better balance, you don't want too much weight on those snowshoes or even your skis. Um, yes, in a lot of cases, you can still go backpack camping with snowshoes. That's not a that's not a, an impossibility. It's not something that's even difficult. But if you're wanting to bring along a hot tent, for example, we were talking about hot tents one of the last times we were on the show um those can weigh a bit even the even the lighter quality ones can weigh a little bit there's some options like we're talking with the lux and other sill nylon style well yeah there's the heavy duty canvas mm -hmm. and you get your nice duck canvas tents and everything when you're counting ounces and pounds when you're talking about a three season tent you're like oh it's a four pound tent mm -hmm. i want to get lighter though 
in the <laughs> summer, but you don't necessarily want to do that in the winter. Yeah. Like even since we talked about hot tents, I'm still even doing my own research for buying tents and everything like that. So there's a lot to go into it. There's a tent for every winter need. Mm-hmm. If you don't plan on bringing a sled and you're just backpacking and snowshoeing in, then you want those nice light sill nylon tents with a collapsible titanium stove mm-hmm. that can easily pack away in your bag because they still weigh as much as a summer tent, even maybe less because it might just be a single pole teepee style mm-hmm. with a nylon shell sort of thing. So and that's a lot to take into account when you're doing the winter trekking. To- totally. And that's that kind of situation. I often look at like that, kind of scenario like i'm taking a backpack instead of a sled that's for me if i'm going over a lot of like hilly terrain let's say like alpine snowshoeing cross-country skiing downhill skiing alpine camping i would probably be more in tune with taking a bag that's where you see it a lot is alpine situations where you're taking your tourist skis your backcountry skis you're slapping the skins on them Mm -hmm. getting on and off and going through some really treacherous terrain yeah and even doing some rock climbing and ice climbing in between so I don't see too many people bringing hot tents in those situations. No. They're usually bringing their nice four-season four season tent, a nice alpine tent with extra poles and everything because totally. they get dumped with a meter of snow at a time yeah. in those situations. So, And even here in Ontario, I could see that's not identical because we don't really have alpine here in Ontario. But yeah. let's say you're doing like the Niagara Escarpment, the Bruce Escarpment. You're going up into the rocky terrain. If you're doing a little bit of like hill work backpacking might be a little bit more in tune for what you're needing well even if you're bushwhacking too and you're not on a designated trail if you're trying to maneuver over and under logs Mm -hmm. in between tight trees if you have you plus six feet of poles plus another five six feet of toboggan picture dragging a canoe behind you it's gonna be pretty tricky trying to maneuver yourself between tight woven trees and everything so and like and like ryan was saying there's a there's a there's a niche in every single category. Like there's going to be a need for every single style. So we're not saying don't take a backpack, but man, if you can get into some open country snowshoe trekking, or you're even up in like the boreal and you're going for a while and you're going to be going along, you're probably going to want a way, like we said in the last episode about hot tents, a way to dry off, a way to warm up. That's the beauty of a hot tent. It's a lot easier to just drag that behind you Mm -hmm. than keep that on your back. And of course, if you're going out winter camping, you're probably going to be bringing a lot more calories than potentially you would be in the summer because A, you can bring a lot more freeze-dried. In this situation, you may want to have a lot more mass to your food. You may have a lot more food in general to keep you warm. Uh, there's also less chance of supplementing your diet from foraging and whatnot. I know a lot of people that go backpacking will actually go out and forage a little bit, go fishing, go you know, picking berries, gathering some cattail roots and stuff to supplement and build up that bulk. That's the a, that's a thing, just the difference between winter camping and even just shoulder season Mm -hmm. summer spring camping it's a lot different needs you need more clothing Mm -hmm. a lot more layers when i go canoe camping i've done trips where i've just brought my 20 30 liter dry bag backpack totally and that's all i use for the whole time i'm there because i'm pretty much wearing the same clothes the whole time Mm -hmm. i'm not having to bring oh i'm bringing multiple pair layers of merino wool socks i'm bringing some liner socks i'm bringing snow pants i'm bringing base layer of everything there's a lot more to think about when there's you're like, camping and a lot more to yeah. carry and it really adds up quick totally. when you're doing your whole pre-trip planning 
and getting everything together. And then all of a sudden your whole living room is just full of gear. <laughs> yep. And it, there's no way you're carrying that. No, in you the backpack. I've done it before where I brought my three season tent. I brought my <laughs> snowshoes and I put everything in my 65 liter Osprey backpack. And it, it was, it was just the bare minimum. I wasn't carrying a lot of heavy gear or anything like that, but there's a lot more comforts. The more often you do it, the more you take pleasure in those comforts of mm -hmm. having a nice warm refuge of a tent to go back to mm -hmm. somewhere where you can really organize things, dry things off. Cause you're just at the will of nature, totally. the less you take. Yeah. And sometimes that's what people aim for. They want that challenge. They want to take least as possible mm -hmm. and they just go out in the woods but totally sometimes you're just doing an expedition you bring everything with you yeah you can't bring your minivan but you'll bring a sled with you <laughs> exactly and you're gonna have things like your ice chisel in there things you don't need in the summertime or the shoulder seasons per se yeah, it's procuring water is a yeah. lot more difficult getting food like you said there's no foraging firewood is a lot more primary concern even if you're yeah. cold tenting you're gonna want to have an, a warming fire outside somewhere potentially for cooking and drying off yeah fire in the summer is more of a luxury to keep mm -hmm. the bugs away and just have something to yeah. communal setting and just sit around around the fire and totally. sing and drink whiskey <laughs> <laughs> the winter it's it's a necessity oh yeah. fire is life <clears> is <throat> in, in the cold weather and so all of those things like ryan was saying you put an element of 60 70 liter rock yeah. you're gonna be hurting after a 10k walk that day in snowshoes or skis well that's if you if you pack heavy then yes and you include the food in that and everything because yeah. like you said more calories mm -hmm. more food i've brought my 30 liter barrel for a weekend of winter camping before <laughs> just to have more food you're packing up on the thick cut mm -hmm. bacon you're bringing <laughs> a lot more calories because yeah. especially not just the cold trying to suck away that warmth from you and you trying to feed that internal furnace but it's also just snowshoeing takes a lot more than just hiking on solid ground dragging in firewood dragging firewood dragging in your gear everything will take that much more energy for mm -hmm. you to make it through safely and so in in that world of deep snow long distance trekking or you're going to be out there at least for an extended period and even for short trips sleds can really save the day for you because you can take that weight off your back and put that more into like your hips and your shoulders pulling it along behind you and there's different rigs people will have like just the tow rope they'll have like a wanigan strap or a tump line around their shoulder uh, other people actually have like either PVC or wooden um, braces that come up to them and attach. Yeah. So it's a little bit stiffer. So if you're coming down a bit of a hill, you don't, you know, get that sled smacking right in the back of the yeah. leg. Uh, those little braces help kind of be like a divider between you and that sled. And that makes it a lot easier to, to bring a lot of that stuff. The wood stove, the tent, the ice chisel, your extra clothing, your extra food, your axe, your saw, your emergency gear, which... I prefer even with a sled to have that real primary emergency gear on me rather than in the sled. So in case there is an emergency, I don't have to rush around looking for it in the bags or in the boxes, but I digress. A sled can really save your back and put the, uh, put the energy in where it really belongs. And that's in the, in the hips, the thighs and the shoulders. Well, even spreading out the weight has a lot of benefits because a lot of winter travel, you're still going on lakes, you're going mm -hmm. on ice. So I feel a lot more confident rather than I probably weigh about 215 mm. as it is. And then if you add another 100 pounds of gear on top of that, yeah. 
And then suddenly you've got a lot more pounds per square inch sitting on that ice. Your mm -hmm. snowshoes can only carry so much weight mm -hmm. on ice. And then even just on powdery deep snow, you're sinking down that much further yeah. into the snow. So having it there allows you to spread it out a lot more. Yeah. Having it clipped onto a harness system in case of emergency, if I feel that I start to crack, I can separate myself from the rest of my gear mm -hmm. and get away from it. Mm -hmm. Just at a moment's notice, even if I fall in, I can clip off and then drag myself out. I can only imagine falling through the ice with a big old pack on your back <sighs> and then trying to like maneuver to get your arms out from the straps and everything while you're sitting in water. Mm -hmm. So. We, we can like you defer back to the ice safety episode we did about a year ago yeah. and just picture that scenario of going in doing an in and out with a loaded pack on your back. Yeah. It's just increasing the odds of bad things going wrong. Increase the odds of losing that pack too. True. Very true gear because typically you're wanting to take your snowshoes off before you try getting it out of the water and mm -hmm. everything. You're taking your skis off. So, and now you're kicking off that <clears> pack and now you're, soaking wet and you have no gear to do, to rely on so exactly. again the sled makes more sense mm -hmm. um the other benefit of a sled to me is just like living in the winter you whether it's a toboggan a polk uh the ski the the the, the, the sleds that have the skis on the bottom smitty sleds, smitty sleds, sleds like kick that. sleds all that kind of dog sleds mm -hmm. um the other benefit to me is like hauling in things so like let's say we have a group out and we decided we we're going to bring like a rain, like a barrel, like one of those backpack barrels. And that's going to be like our water source. We can go out with a sled with that on it. What Polks do best for that. Toboggan's not so much. Mm -hmm. Go and cut a hole, fill that. And that's all our water for like the next 48 hours. Yeah. Bring that back into a tent and keep it warm so it doesn't freeze over on us. And that's a lot easier to do with a sled than carrying that barrel back. Again, firewood harvesting. If you have a polk or even a toboggan, you can go out and cut trees down, cut dead wood, chop it up, throw it into that sled and drag it back. Instead of doing 20 trips with a little arm load each time, mm -hmm. you can go out there and you can bring, throw your axe in there and throw your saw in there. Now you can walk around safer. So if you do trip in your skis or trip in your snowshoes, you're not walking with an axe or a saw mm -hmm. looking for firewood. You get to a good tree, you pull the saw out of the sled, you pull the axe out of the sled, you cut it up throw it all in, throw the axe in the, the, it's a kind of set and forget it kind of scenario that makes life a lot easier. It's like having your own personal trailer behind you. Yeah. It's you like a little buggy. Everything <laughs> behind you in there, it's carrying it. You're just pulling it. Mm -hmm. As long as the friction's not too bad, then you're going to be a lot better off. You get afterwards. to be the draft animal instead of being the, the beast of burden necessarily. Exactly. And along those, along those notes, like, there's also other uses, like depending on the type of sled, you now have a workbench to, to be able to prep food on or uh, set things on like a candle lantern or something or your tools when you're sharpening up stuff and everything else. Instead of having everything on the snow, getting lost in the powder, you have a space that you can kind of do work on or in some scenarios, even sit on if you need to. Um, you were well, even talking about recommend it. No, the last thing you want is to break, break right that. through your sled, but you were talking about it earlier. There's actually like some folks that have designed sleds that are basically their bench or their cot for when they get into their, their tent later on. Yeah. It was like the Smitty sled we talked about. Yeah. I saw one guy on Facebook that had built pretty much a nice box, mm -hmm. put four legs on it and then had skis as the feet of that. So less surface area surface area it's yeah, going to yeah. slide a lot easier it's just two skis going through the snow as if you're cross-country skiing mm. but then they made it about six feet long depending on their height and then you can just fill that up put that in your hot tent 
and then it's like a cot that's ready to go. You don't have to pull another cot with you and mm -hmm. everything. So we're spend half the day cutting bugs. <clears throat> and that's one of my favorite things is multiple uses for everything totally. that you have. You're having the sled that pulls your gear and also holds you at night and you can just chill and have a nice comfortable sleep. Cause that's totally. always the most important thing next yes. to water and fire is sleep. Yeah. Being well rested. And I would argue the fire is part of getting rest because you got to be warm to sleep well. Yeah. So like to me, it's always, I kind of always defer back to Morse's old saying, like if you're well hydrated and you're getting a good night, nice sleep, you're surviving fine. You're yeah. doing well. Now you can focus on thriving. And yeah. so, yeah, it totally makes sense to me. And I really do dig that idea of like the ski caught mm -hmm. concept. It's a brilliant idea. Uh, Comatics, the, the traditional Inuit Comatic was frequently used like if you're out on the land, that's where you would sleep with a wind brace. Exactly. Uh, especially if you're out like ice fishing or out on the sea ice, you'd be, mm -hmm. instead of having all your body touching that ice, you'd be sitting on top of that, working on top of that. And so it's just a natural progression of our technologies. When you have something like that, that is so useful, it makes sense. It's going to have a lot of different uses and yeah. benefits. I've even seen people use utility sleds to form snow blocks yeah. and everything for snow shelters. Yeah, yeah. You fill that up, pack it down, and as if you were making a snow cat, I mean, a sandcastle, then pop. you just tip it over, pop it out, and then you got a nice snow block, especially if you have light snow around you, but you want more to help anchor the edges of your snow tent around the totally, snow skirt and totally. everything so you can pretty much haul anything you need to water fuel yeah anything so and so there's there's kind of three main categories of sleds that i'm aware of you have like what some people refer to as the pulk which is kind of like almost like a i want to say like a like a tupperware or a rubbermaid kind of concept of it's a big plastic it's got walls. It's pretty usually uniformly one piece of material shape. It's not usually, uh, traditionally they were often made of like boards of wood tacked together. Nowadays they're usually a polymer or plastic. Yeah, they're, they're molded yeah. to the shape and yeah. they're like little bathtubs. Yeah, they really are. Sometimes they're made out of plastics or else they're even fiberglass. Mm -hmm. If you get really into the Arctic stuff and the yeah, military yeah. level of the sleds. So mm -hmm. and then. They've got their pros and cons we'll talk about. And then we have the classic toboggan, right? And there's a lot of variations of toboggans. There's wooden toboggans. There's plastic toboggans. There's yeah. hybrids between the two where they have the nice wooden front to keep it nice and durable up there, nice and elegant up there. And the rest of it's plastic. And there's a bunch of other variations. And then there's like what I often just refer to as like the sledge or sleigh. Uh, and that could be like the Smitty sled. Mm -hmm where you have again skis cross pieces and then the body of the sled on top and that's going to a cut down on surface area so it's going to slide better less you know resistance against you b they kind of act like keels on a canoe they help kind of those two little skis are really good at tracking they're really yeah. good at keeping behind you instead of having it skid around and slip around mm -hmm. it's just got two points that are straight arrows right towards your heels and you just keep on walking. Works for dog sleds. So dog sleds <laughs> works for comatics, snowmobile sleds. There's a lot of types of sleds. Heck, the even like cross country skiers that take their kids with them that are babies. They even have those yeah. little sleighs behind them mm -hmm. that they carry their kids in. Uh, the the classic winter sled. Too. It's just, yeah. You can load it up with gear and everything. So. Yeah. And so that's really the the, th the three main categories. The sleds that you'll come across will usually fit inside one of those three categories. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're going to kind of break those down, talk about some of their pros, talk about their cons. At the end of the day, they all have their 
reasons to exist, just like any tool that we have for the bush. You have your bush craft, uh, your your general purpose bush axe, your felling axe, your hatchet. They all have their different uses. You might as well have all three types of tools in your home, in your collection to use. Uh, you're going to have, you know, four or five different kinds of knives that people use. You're going to have one or two different kinds of ways to cut into ice, a bunch of different ways to make fire. They all depend on the context and the situation you're in. Same with these sleds. There is no one that is absolutely across the board perfect. They all have their benefits and they all have their detriments. If you try to hammer a nail with a saw, it's not going to work very well. <laughs> you need to use the right tool for the right situation. Exactly. <laughs> so, I'm just picturing myself trying that now with a carpenter saw and a big old like nine inch <laughs> spike trying to go into a log. Timber framing would take a lot longer. Yeah. I can say that for sure. That's one of the things I always see is people complain that it didn't suit their needs, but you should have done your research mm -hmm. and realized it wasn't going to suit your needs from the start. So always pick the, the right tool for the right job. Totally. So let's start with toboggans. Uh, toboggans, it actually comes from uh, the Algonquian language, the, the word toboggan or toboggan or toboggan, depending on whether you're Cree, Ojibwe. Or Odobin. Yep. Yep. And it's basically talking about like the fact that you're dragging it behind you and it's a, it's a container to carry things in or a vessel to carry things in. Um, a toboggan is generally a flat boarded object that at the very end, where at the front of it, at the very uh, front end, it's curved up kind of like the skis on a sleigh. And that helps again, cut through the snow, move it out of the way. The, the average, popular you know freight toboggan is approximately 14 to 16 inches wide and that allows it to kind of stay inside the tracks of this of the snowshoes so that while you're walking you're breaking trail for that sleigh or that toboggan um there's a lot of variations of them the traditional cree style were often just kind of like an l shape not that classic recurved all the way back into itself like what we all grew up using on you know snow hills um but some did have that real sharp curve, and that's pretty much the common style we see today. They can be made traditionally out of birch, ash, uh, cedar. Quarter inch to half inch cedar board split out of good straight grain wood are really easy to make. Um, a toboggan can be made out of wood in under two hours. If you've got all the right tools, you know what you're doing with it. It can be very an easy, a very easy build. Well, even I'd compare that curve at the front of the rocker of a canoe. Yeah. It's made to cut through waves. Exactly. It's meant to certain shapes for certain uses, totally. but just mostly it's meant to cut through that snow. Totally. Make it to go over top rather than just dig its nose right into it. Exactly. I totally agree. And they're, they're, the average lengths, like some people like eight footers, some people like 10 footers. I think 10 seems to be the most popular from who I've talked <clears> with. 12s are not unheard of. Traditional Anishinaabek, when we were doing like our hauling of trapline life, we actually sometimes were carrying ones or pulling ones that were 16 to 18 feet long, though that is a little bit unheard of nowadays. And traditionally that was done with like people and dogs assisting on the pole. These are like big moving your entire family from one camp to the next through the winter. Yes, um, if you're just going solo, don't need you, that. You don't need it. No. You just need something eight to 10 feet at most. Yeah. To just carry yourself, your tobacco, your uh, 
wood stove, your tent, yeah. any tarps and clothing, everything, your and everything. That's all you really need. Totally. But when you go group camping, that's when you want to get up to the 14, 16, yeah. 18 footers. Yeah. The, the, from talking with Kylan and Dave Maroney, who run Lure of the North, great organization that are preparing for their big, actually, I think they just left yesterday. They just left Friday. 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 Yeah, yeah. Uh, they are doing this huge Trans-Ontario expedition, the Big Toe. They're leaving from like Espanola area and going all the way up the Missanabe, uh, trying to get all the way up to James Bay in one in one trek, in one expedition. And these guys have been doing it for over a decade now, and they got a lot of experience. And from even chatting with them and even looking at their website, you can quickly see what is the most popular size toboggan on there. And as the 10 footer, because they're always sold out and they really like them. 12 footers are available as well from a lot of companies. And this is getting into away from the wood. This is talking about the more modern freight toboggans that a lot of people like our, our, our good friends down in the States, a lot of our friends here in Canada use are made of plastic. They're made of a plastic uh, polymer. There's usually three different types. What are those ones again? HDP, HDPE, yep. high density polyethylene, LDP. Low density Low polyethylene. Density. Yeah. There's also the UHMW. Oh, UMHW. Ultra high molecular weight. Yeah, is yeah. Is what it stands for. And then so P at the end of that. It's very fancy. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not into that scientific side of things. But. So, what these plastics are preferred to be is they're <clears throat> dense enough and durable enough to handle extreme cold and the abuses that will happen when you're going over different terrain. They are. Also very, uh, very uh, slick. The idea yeah. is you don't want to have a lot of friction at all when you're making contact with that snow and ice. Because again, you have to drag that behind you. And when you're bringing your entire livelihood for the month or the year of winter time that you're out there, the season, you really don't want to have to work the whole time trying to just pull things. It's, it's, it takes a right balance because it works like downhill skis, cross-country skis, and skates. So you want something the friction can be your friend and your foe at the same time you want enough friction that it creates that warmth to kind of melt that small layer mm -hmm. and then it'll just slide over it totally so but you don't want it enough friction that it's slowing you down totally so that's where they kind of feel their magic happy medium happy yeah. balance and that's the thing is like the wooden toboggans they are often really easy to build and they're dependable in that sense of like okay if i break this strut holding the boards together or i break this board i can replace it in the field really fast mm -hmm. however you've got to oil and wax and really like polish and burnish yeah. the bottom half because it's just a big wide 14 inch to 16 inch wide 8 foot to 12 foot long board of wood mm -hmm. that is going to have pock marks and grain picking up snow picking up frost picking up ice it can get wet and start building up ice on it which becomes a friction problem and now you're dragging this block of ice behind you yeah that's why a lot of people who do this today use hdpe ldp uhmw yeah. the ben the real benefit is they're really slippy and slidey and they they don't pick up a lot of friction along the way but as you said will give a little bit to help it kind of slide and keep it on track mm -hmm. The, and that's the, really the main two categories. You have your wooden toboggans that are usually made of ash or other very easy to bend hardwoods like birch, or they're made of cedar, which is really easy to steam bend and it's quite light. And then you have your plastics like LDPE, HDPE, UHMWPE, sometimes referred to for polyethylene at the end. 
And those are your two main categories of toboggan. So beyond like the, the length and the width, is there any other specs we uh, people consider when it comes down to toboggans? Well, often you'll see them just running straight, yeah. just uniform width from front to back, nothing much. And that's, that's fine. It's completely yep. fine. But then for the more high performance models, you'll start to see them taper off a little more. They'll be wide in the shoulder. Right. They'll be a little narrow in the nose, wide in the front shoulders, and then taper off towards the back, which gives it a little more hydrodynamic, snow dynamic, I guess. Sure. It's, it's kind of it's kind of like that classic coffin shape. Coffin shape. And then, so it'll go from like 16 inches to 14 inches at the toe or something like that. Yeah. Just so, to help less contact with snow. Yeah. Glides a little better. Still gives you a nice pressure point at the front. Something mm -hmm. to really plow through that snow. But at the same time, it just tapers off. And it works well with how you load your right. toboggan and everything. Yeah. yeah. So... There's different styles in that way. It's kind of like thinking about boats again. Again, yeah, that makes sense. That's kind of like a lot of people refer to the toboggan as like the canoe of the winter. Like it's the, it's the, we use canoes with paddles and poles to get through the bush in the wet, dry, uh, in the wet, warm seasons. And then we use the toboggan and snowshoes to do the same thing in the cold, dry seasons. Mm -hmm. it, it, they kind of balance each other that way, even to the point that Morse Kohansky was frequently seen using a, t a an actual canoe as his toboggan. He would refer to that as his sled and everything else, or his pulk. He was using like the front two thirds or three quarters of a canoe mm -hmm. and would just drag his gear in that because he was arguing that it was more snow dynamic or aqua dynamic, hydrodynamic, however you want to describe mm -hmm. it. Um, sure, that's more of a pulk. And we can kind of talk about that in a moment when we get into the pulks, but. Eventually, I want to do a full video based showdown. Oh, yeah. Yeah. between everything and have them go up against each other and really in different see terrains and the true pros and cons of each and just how the it's it's easy to think of things on paper and everything sure. but when you actually put it into use like this does not work the way i imagine it to because <laughs> i feel like stuff like canoes in general unless you're using an ultralight kevlar canoe that weighs 34 pounds and even that's still pretty heavy mm -hmm. for a sled itself so yeah, yeah. maybe I we can... should take one of our birch bark canoes and transform <laughs> it to a winter we'll just be tacking boards around the outside to protect that bark it ends up 300 pounds by the time we've reinforced <laughs> it enough went from 20 to 300 and real quick yep so talking about that like getting into it like where what are the like, the real benefits that you see in a toboggan? Like what makes them really, why are they so popular still today to a lot of folks? Toboggans are nice. They're, they're nice and light. Yeah. Depending on how big they are and everything, but there's always a trade-off from that weight. But mm -hmm. I like the flexibility of them. They can really contour to the terrain they're traveling over. Less chance of skidding around and knocking, knocked off the course. Yeah, you know, going off little lumps left mm -hmm. by snowmobiles and having it just teetering on that one little spot in the middle, they really curve and bend and maintain contact mm -hmm. with the ground at all times. So that's one of my favorite things about them. Totally. You don't have to worry about them. And even just with the torsion of it all, it can twist as well. So it's, it's nice. It can take those curves nice and just really 
conform to the terrain. I don't know why, but every time I see tobo- like a group of people walking off with toboggans, either going up over a hill or down into a valley or something, it just looks like a little series of millipedes. Yeah. They really do hug the landscape and the terrain. Mm-hmm. The, the topography works in tandem with the toboggan to work well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's definitely a, a winning point. And of course, they're, they're light and they're usually just one thing. So there's, there's less issues that can go wrong with them in a lot of people's eyes because they're, they're, they're simple systems. Oh, the rope broke, put a new piece of paracord through there, yeah. problem solved. Um, it's not like a bunch of high-tech like sleds that we see with snowmobiles and stuff where there's rivets and screws and bolts nuts and stuff. And bolts yeah. and wing nuts. They're, they're <laughs> very straightforward. If one of the braces breaks off, you can usually get by by just driving a nail through that. And a nail you can make with a piece of wire or a piece of metal that you have on the on hand, scrap you found on the trail. I even know one guy that it ended up he lost the rivet because he used copper rivets to hold his braces to the toboggan yeah. board. And so what he did was he just carved a piece of wood that fit tapered it drove it through split the end and drove a wedge into that and trimmed it off and it lasted another two seasons before you remember to replace it Mm -hmm. so like there's a lot of ways that you can be very low-tech repair most of the sleds we're talking about today are fairly dependable that way so i'm not saying like this is the number one pro and you must get a toboggan because it's low-tech easy to repair even with all of them there's different ways you can modify it and some people want the more high-tech setups, sure. but sometimes it's beneficial if you're going on a very long trip, unsupported. You mm-hmm. don't have a support crew that's waiting on your every need. You're like, we need this. Please send help. <laughs> the, weight, the weight of your toolbox has to be considered when yeah. you're doing those long trips. So it's nice that something simple can be just quick fix mm-hmm. right on the spot keep moving you're not bogged down with oh, i don't know how to fix this right here now i don't have yep. the toolkit i use to put everything together mm-hmm. so it's really beneficial to find that balance between something that's really easy to maintain on the trail but also still is sturdy mm-hmm. strong meets all your needs totally so with those pros well there's also, think there's any other pros there's pros like the storage of them you yeah can roll them up Especially if you don't have a big pickup truck or anything where you can just toss the sled in the back. Mm. You can roll it up, toss it in the back seat of your car. When you get to the place you are, you just yep. pull it out, good to go. Usually a cinch strap or even a bungee cord can be used to kind of roll them up like a Swiss roll cake or something and just tuck them away. Yeah, so just for storage and transportation, it's really nice and easy to mm. do things that way. So I think the other just general benefit is when it comes down to it, they are fun. They like people like them. Like we got to take that into consideration. Do you enjoy bringing this? Cause it fit, does it fit your needs? Does it fit your appreciation of what you're doing? I know that a lot of us kind of live the Instagram life now where we're trying to like, every time we put up a winter, uh, winter shelter, we got to get those snowshoes, you know, perfectly set yeah. in position. The fire has to look pristine, sweep away any, you know, foot tracks that make it look like too many people were there. I get that we're kind of getting in that light and it's kind of getting kind of annoying to some folks, but there is an aesthetic, like there's kind of an aesthetic and some people, you know, they'll, they'll really, really care about that. And they enjoy the idea of like a, like a, a, just a toboggan on the landscape being pulled behind somebody in a classic, like winter anorak made of canvas and snowshoe moccasins or mucklucks. It's a classic look. And yeah. It reminds us of our childhoods growing up. Yeah. Tobogganing on these old, <laughs> 
wooden toboggans. Rickety ones held together with copper rivets and with nails. With four or five of you and your cousins, your brothers and sisters. <laughs> the dog chasing you. And just everyone just lined up from front to back, just going down a hill on one of these rickety old toboggans that your grandparents had at their place. Yeah, so. it's, it's a good memory. And like a lot for a lot of us, when we get into bushcraft, it's to get kind of, not necessarily live in the past, but kind of remember the past. It's part it's of the nostalgia. Reconnect. Yeah, reconnection, so. 100%. So I think that's something we got to like take into consideration there is like the aesthetic appreciation of the shape and the features and the function and form of a toboggan. It's a, it's a fun thing to have. It's a beautiful thing to have. One more pro I want to talk about sure. with toboggans is the choice of material. You Like we talked about before, LDP, HDPE, wooden, UHMW. There's options to really create your own. It's one of the easier ones to make yeah. on your own. And you have that choice of materials. Whereas mm -hmm. if you go and buy a Pelican sled, that's the sled you've got. Yeah. You can't ask Pelican, hey, can you make this out of UHMW, please? Can you make it a little bit pointier at the end? I don't really like the, the width of it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's, you really can modify it to your own needs. You can mm -hmm. make it exactly the way you want it. So that's what I really like because it's not a factory made tool. Yeah. It's something you can really make at home. You don't have to get the molds that they use to inject mold, Pelican vacuum seal them or vacuum shape them. And you might not want to have to work with uh, fiberglass and all those other yeah. materials. So it's something that's just nice, simple design, really easy to use, really easy to maintain. So that's what I like about them. And they've got like, there's a lot of other, you know, benefits like uh, when it comes down to it, like um, wearability. So we were actually doing some research before to make sure that we knew what that UMHW stuff is. If you go to Lure of the North, they aren't selling them right now. They've because they they've now left on their big expedition. They're not putting in or they're not accepting orders and actually like putting them out right now. Uh, they I'm not even sure if their store is opening back up in the spring or summer. I have no idea, but we'll see. We'll see. Let's we'll see what happens. Dave and Kai some time to figure it out. And there's other companies that make them. If you go online, you can find these plastic style toboggans for sale. Around 350 to 450 is like the average. I'm seeing some going for a little bit less, some going for a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But we were like, okay, so what's the value in these different plastics? The the, the regular HDP, high-density polyethylene sleds from Lure of the North, just going by their own website, averages uh, a three-year uh, warranty. They offer a three-year warranty. You can't get a warranty on a wooden toboggan. I can tell you that right now. If you got a 12-foot wooden toboggan handmade, it's like, okay, you better know how to fix it yourself or know people to know how to fix this. Yeah. That toboggan from Lure of the North has a three-year waiting, uh, three-year warranty, not waiting list. Sorry, the U is it UMHW or UHMW? UHMW. UHMW. Ultra high molecular. Ultra high. Thank you. Ultra high molecular we uh, weight polyethylene has a seven-year warranty, which mm -hmm. should give you a perspective of how long these things can last, how durable they can be. They are very, very, very tough uh, the, because of the plastics or polymers they're using. I've gone through a couple of pelicans in my lifetime, a couple of pulks in my lifetime, because they're usually made from a cheaper ABS tile. Especially style if you're pulling them behind ATVs and snowmobiles, yeah, they'll yeah. have a lot more friction, a lot more use, yeah. a lot more heavy stuff in the back of them. Mm -hmm. So the more you use it, it's just going to have yeah. a lot more surface area touching it. All those grooves and the designs mm -hmm. of it, they'll have their benefits and their cons. So. Exactly. Again, we're not saying that polks are crap. We're going to be praising polks <clears throat> quite a bit. I love polks. I love polks. We have a, I, there's a reason I've gone through so many of them. I like the design, but I'm just trying to get across like 
a toboggan that's made of a good polyethylene of some sort can last quite a while. It's not gonna be like your lifetime. It's not necessarily be a, it may be an inheritance to your grandkids or your kids, depending on how you use it and how frequently, yeah. but there's extra configurations you can do to totally. extend the life of it. Yeah. And just general maintenance. It's like a car. Mm -hmm. The better you take care of it, the longer it's going to last you. So, and that's the same as the Polk, but it's kind of like a Polk is a little bit more to some people's eyes disposable because they're using it to just drag behind their snowmobile out to the ice hut and they just drag it across the concrete, drag it across the asphalt or asphalt, however you say that to not sound like an idiot, um, beating it up all the time. And that's kind of like the, in some ways the benefit of a pulp. It's marketed as a utility sled when exactly. you buy them. So it's hunters use them, mm -hmm. trappers use oh, them. Oh, yes we do. Ice fishers use mm -hmm. them. That's the biggest market I've seen for mm -hmm. them when I worked at sale that it would just be ice fishermen. Come in, get your ice shelter, get your pelican sled that you can put your five gallon buckets in mm -hmm. and gear and lures and Lord knows what else. Stuff, so and yeah. so they get they get they're made to be beat up. Yeah. Whereas these HTP, LDP, UHMWs they they just have a longer wear on their surface because there's less friction. Those those cheaper plastics used in the pulks, they have a little bit more friction in them. And there's certain things you can get to change that. We'll talk about that when we get to the pulks. But most of the time, the body of it is going to be a lot more friction. Therefore, it's going to have a lot more wear. And that's just how the world works when it comes down to polymers and friction. Mm -hmm. um, so on that, like those are where I would see the toboggan really shining. Where do we have some detriments with toboggans? Are there any real cons to a toboggan? mine it's less contained you can get the bags for them to toboggan really, trunks whatever they're called yeah you can really get a nice bag to really contain everything on the sled it doesn't have those walls though so mm. things even once you pack them and you start moving a bit you're going things are kind of moving around a bit Shuffling. it it's quite a learning curve to learn how to pack them properly totally. and get them really at their high performance level yeah, getting your wider, heavier things on the bottom, getting the lighter things on top that don't take up as much room so that it's not, you know, bulging out the sides. And that's like the biggest problem. Like people will take like a hockey bag and stick it on a toboggan with some bungee cords and they'll load up all their stuff. And yeah, it's a 14 to 16 inch wide toboggan. And now you got a 24 inch wide mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of like almost like my belly over my belt kind of thing. Yeah, the belt's there to contain, but it ain't containing crap. And that's kind of how I see those toboggans they end up looking like the belly of like a beaver or a groundhog with the rest of the shape of the toboggan when those bags are on there, if they're not loaded properly, if they're not cinched in. And now you've got all this friction, but also you've got all this exposed material to wet conditions potentially. So especially if you're going with a group, when I've gone with school groups and everything, and you have students loading them, mm -hmm. they're not necessarily going to know where to put it. They don't have their loading system in order. Yeah. So you have some people who bring backpacks, some people bring duffel bags and hockey bags. Mm -hmm. So it's like the hardest game of Tetris. You're playing within this 14-inch to 16-inch kind of variable space right here. And front to back, it's also loading it from front to back. We're putting it your heaviest stuff on the back third of the, looking in segments. So... Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a high learning curve, and after a while, you really work it out how you want to load this. And by the time you've been doing it for 25 years, you're an old-timer that knows exactly mm -hmm. how to do it, and they tell everyone else, stand back. Let me do my stuff. I've got this. <laughs> so. When I was in the Air Cadets when I was a kid, they taught us this loading system for toboggans with a tarp where you would get everything loaded in a certain way, you would cinch it all down, and it would look nice and tight. Every time it looked nice and tight. Yeah. 
and then we get a kilometer in and it would like explode. It would just stretch out and the ropes would get loose. They didn't have good cinch systems. They didn't have good strapping systems. They didn't have good, you know, bundling systems. And yeah, we wrapped it up as tight as, as a burrito could ever get tied. Uh, can, can be can get rolled out of a tarp. Mm-hmm. It just always seemed to fall apart midway through the trek. And I hated those things. And that's where I started falling for pulks mm-hmm. until I learned later that, hey, there's like duffel systems that are made for toboggans. And there's the milk crate methods and some people build yeah. walls for their toboggans and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff that can be done. But I would just remember dragging the toboggan and then you would get to like a creek or a melt spot on the lake and you cross too because you got to go through there. That's the path of least resistance. Yeah. And then all your gear gets soaked mm-hmm. along those edges because there's not, it's not like a boat. It's not like a pulk. It's not like a tub or a Rubbermaid. The water can come in. Unless it's perfectly sealed in whatever bag exactly. you've got in there. Then... <laughs> that bag better be waterproof if you want your, like your yeah. sleeping bag better be in a dry bag, mm-hmm. period. If you want to have a good night's sleep that night yeah. in the Quincy. Which I, I recommend in any Anyways. style of winter camping. You're bound to get snow and moisture. Oh, you always need redundancies of protection. your sleeping bag is your most important thing to keep dry. Heck know, yes. So. Heck yes. Um, and so that's like for both of us, I think that's the biggest problem with the toboggan is if it's not loaded properly, it doesn't have the right kind of, your, your stuff's exposed to the elements. You can easily, you, you go up against a rock when you're coming down the hill or something and that rock tears open that bag and out comes a bunch of down from your down mothership jacket you got yeah. and it's flying everywhere and you've ruined a 500 or $800 jacket. That's where I find pulks are kind of idiot proofed in that sense with the high walls which on. is why i like them i think exactly. i'm an idiot <laughs> us idiots love them so it's it's like it's like a boat it's got high walls it's mm-hmm. gonna go through that water it might even float in the water with your gear if you clap a couple a times bit. so it's gonna be nicely contained and you have that room for error so totally. it's nice and you're not gonna get snow necessarily creeping its way in every little nook mm-hmm. and cranny and that's the other thing it's gonna be sticking out the side so and and that's where like i was gonna say is like you have those bags let's say it's a hockey bag or a, a duffel bag like the army surplus paratrooper bags or whatever everybody likes yeah. to use it's kind of sagging on the sides it picks up a little bit of water maybe it's water resistant or even waterproof but it's going to get wet on the outside now that's going to collect some snow on it that's going to start creating some ice yeah. and now you've got that friction You've got that stuff fighting you when you go up that hill. You've got that stuff slowing you down as you're crossing that lake. And even as things bulge out the side, it might transfer a little more weight to the right side. So all of a sudden you're, you're pulling the sled, your toboggan, and all of a sudden you're like, this is digging. It's so much harder to pull now. And you notice that it's been just dragging through the fresh powder this Mm -hmm. whole time, creating an anchor on the side and pulling it, wanting to tip the toboggan over on its side. So, and and they're less tippy than some other forms of sleds, but they like everything still has like a center of gravity. Mm -hmm. Things can tip if you put them to the right extremes. And when you've got frost or ice or snow dragging down on one side, you're going up on a bit of an incline that it's gonna something's gonna break, not something's gonna give, not something's gonna break, but something's gonna give. And it's gonna either get ass over tea kettle, fall over on its side, and all your stuff gets dragged through the snow, or it starts dragging you down. You're going along a ledge. Mm Like you see some of these snow tracks that people go on where they're walking along like mountainsides mm-hmm. with a toboggan behind them. And it's like an 80 foot yeah. drop at like a 70 degree incline. If that toboggan starts getting bogged down on its right side mm-hmm. and, or left side, if you're walking right wides, depending on which way you're going on the ledge, you potentially have that 
like 80, 90 pounds behind you, swinging off of you and going down that hill and pulling you, there's a chance for injury there. Yeah. So to me, if you're going to be doing toboggan trekking, you need to have a good like toboggan trunk or bag system. Set it up yourself. There's companies online that sell them, manufacture them. They usually cost the same as a toboggan. Uh, so in total, your investment might be closer to a thousand dollars for a good bag and a good toboggan with a, a harness system and everything else. You might be looking at a grand. Well, even a modification to keep your mind on for traveling on uneven surfaces mm. would be having some sort of fin system on your sleds. Yeah. I've seen it more on polks than I do on toboggans, but I've also seen people configure systems to have some sort of single or double fin system that kind a of little, looks like a rudder yeah i was gonna say like rudder blades so it helps the the toboggan track in a straight line mm -hmm. especially if you're going down this kind of going back and forth on different gradients and on stuff. different gradients and your the downhill is to your side and your sled just wants to pull to the side across mm -hmm. then those fins will give something to give a purchase to the snow definitely so that's that's something to keep your mind on if you want to add some modifications to it so for sure for sure i think one of the other cons i was thinking about is the pole systems since mm. it typically is just a rope with a tump line yeah and some sort of strap that you're pulling over which i feel like it's not the most ergonomic thing to be using right so and then also yeah. just the strength of the ropes and if you're going downhill with it behind you, the possibility of it taking your ankles out. Yeah. Chop walking you. <laughs> it's like the guy that just runs in behind you with his stuff when you're walking. Yeah. Guy that gets you with the grocery cart at the aisle. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that's that's where like some people, like you look at the Snowwalkers campaign, they talk about like different uh, hauling systems that they can be set up, whether it's like mm -hmm. two poles or two pieces of PVC pipe or PEX pipe. Uh, I've got friends that have tried using like aluminum or steel conduit, and then they realize that weighs more than their sled does. Yeah. And it's just exhausting their shoulders. Um, and they, and you can use those four sleds, uh, of, of like you can use that for toboggans, pulks, but usually people are using a tump system with a rope. Well, yeah, that's and, what I'm mostly going off is what I normally see. Yeah. And I've thought about, we have those two freight toboggans in the yep. back there that we hope to really do some good mods shine on. it up and oh, do yeah. some extra mods. And that's what I like about the Polk I have is mm -hmm. those PVC pipes, just plumbing supplies at your yeah. Home Depot. Ten bucks. It's ten bucks <clears throat> for a ten foot length sort of thing, or Get seven some, bucks. Put some parachute cord through for your tie offs. Yeah, pretty much set. And there's lots of. I'll, we'll talk about more of that too because I've sure, been working sure. on some of that lately. But yeah, the, it helps a lot with your downhill sections, keeping Definitely. it separated from you. So not every moment, sometimes you have to walk the dog down the hill mm -hmm. whenever you're using the toboggan with just a rope system. Yeah. You stand behind it, hold onto the rope and let it guide you and hope it doesn't pull you and take off if it's too big of a hill. Yeah. And suddenly everything you're depending on is flying down the hill and mock one. So. And that's like where things can go sketch like i know some guys that'll set up like a whole harness carabiner like pulley system mm -hmm. when they've got like an 80 degree incline they've got to do to get to that river to be able yeah. to go across and get to their next location and it's setting up like a Z drag to really control that's great i'm not opposed to that mm -hmm. that's kind of like again going back to a pulk if you have everything well contained in a pulk you got like a good lid on it of some sort of containment on the top 
you can be a little bit more bold with a pulk, I find, than a toboggan. Yeah. Just a little bit more bold. And I, again, going back to like sharp rocks and stuff going down that hill, I'd rather it scratch up the side of my pulk than tear open my bag and get to my gear. Yeah. So if we're sending it downhill and does get out of control, I find a pulk would be a little bit more leaning towards more bomb proof, not necessarily 100% bomb proof, but I expect less damage when I get down to the bottom and recover my gear. Than if it's just in a toboggan with like a duffel bag, yeah. I, I, there's going to be more likelihood of damage in there. Whether it's a bent tent pole, or damaged axe, or torn open gear, shredded uh, clothing, <laughs> pulverized food, who knows what might well, be. Especially if it's a wooden toboggan too, it might just turn into splinters by That's the time true. it hits a tree at the bottom of the hill or Very a rock true. or something. Very so. true. So yeah, there's, and, and again, we can prevent that with like the, the right kind of training, the right kind of experience. If you know how to use your tools, it's just like you're talking about with cars with the maintenance idea, same thing. If you know how to drive it, you can do a lot more bold things that other people may not want to do if you know how to drive it that way. Mm -hmm. So training and working with them, taking trips with properly trained guides and outfitters that do winter trekking can show you some of those tricks on the, on the steeper inclines and more risky scenarios like, to show you how to do it. And like anything, trying out all methods. Mm -hmm doing that sort of thing seeing which one you prefer in theory it might work you mm -hmm. want a pulk but then you actually try and you're like i like the toboggan better yeah sort of thing so work with friends work with professional companies seek out information from mm -hmm. knowledgeable people in your circle so totally and again like we're we're making it very clear it sounds like we're both leaning towards pulks we're not we're telling you there's different niches they fit different categories it's fit different we have both HDP toboggans and pulks at this property where we're recording right now for a reason. Yeah. We have both for a reason. I don't have sleighs and we'll get into why I don't carry a lot of sleighs, but I do still support them and like them. They just don't fit what I do for the most part. And we'll talk about that later. So anything else we really want to hit on toboggans before we jump onto the pulk wagon? Toboggans, I think we've covered most of the stuff I've noted down. Hmm. and we can always touch on it while we're totally. talking about pulks and something comes up in our mind let's totally touch back on it so we can move on the pulks if you like let's talk about pulks then so again to reiterate a pulk is usually a one piece almost like a tub or rubbermaid plastic usually something like abs or even a cheaper plastic common brand that most people know is pelican that's yeah. that's across the board. Most people know Pelican. There's a couple other ones out there. This here in North America, yeah. it's the common used one. I've seen Otter is another brand. Yep, I've seen those. So, and then you've got they're not always plastic. Sometimes they're made of fiberglass. The the military style ones are usually aluminum conduit kind of handles with uh, a, a fiberglass core or fiberglass shell that are really tough, <clears throat> like really yeah, tough. The military scows. That's the term. It. That's it. Yeah. So yeah, it's. The problem is they're expensive for those yep. ones and they get eaten up by ski and snow hills for their ski patrol. Yeah. They love those for their search and rescue teams yes. that they can pull on a snowmobile up the side of your ski slopes. <laughs> yep. so they're, they're hardcore. They're used in Arctic applications. Yep. So yeah. they're phenomenal. If you can find one, 
And even when it's slightly damaged, you can get a Bondo kit and fix that fiberglass or replace the handles or what have you. The type that start at 500 bucks and yeah. can cost you a thousand dollars. They weigh 80 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like bringing a canoe with you. Yeah. But. And that's where we defer back to like the plastic ones that are available at most big box stores that involve anything with the outdoors. So like here in Ontario, you'll find them at Canadian Tires. You'll find them sometimes even at Home Depot. Uh, you find them at Walmart occasionally. If there's an ice fishing section at like Sale or whatever outdoor store you go to, chances are you're going to see Polks. Yeah, Pelican. Uh, Pelican is the brand I see most at Sale. Mm-hmm. Canadian Tire. Mm-hmm. Home Hardwares. Home yeah. Hardwares and stuff. But there's also other companies like Aeropro Paris. Okay. The Paris Expedition Sled is a pretty popular yeah, yeah, DIY Polk sled to use. I picked one up on sale from Home Hardware just here in Peterborough. Mm. So it cost me about 60, 70 bucks. So a lot cheaper than 500 to 800. Yeah. It's a nice six. I think it's about 60 inch sled. Ooh, that's so not a bad length. Five feet long. Yeah. It's the same as the Pelican Trek 60 that I picked up, 60 as in 60 inches. Mm-hmm. And there's also, that's kind of the consumer level right before. The snowmobile ones like the trek 75 where they're a little wider thicker heavy duty you can get them with an actual tow attachment on it for your snowmobile mm-hmm. so yeah, there's a lot of stuff and you can take pretty much any consumer toboggan plastic sled and turn in that's why i did last year canadian tire I, I couldn't find any of the pelicans i couldn't find any of the paris expedition sleds anything so i looked at my local canadian tire found i think it was still made by air pro paris mm. and it was the manitou okay that was the model name but it worked great still it's it was a 25 dollar kid sled can hold two to three kids so it's a good it, amount of weight it was still about 50 to 60 inches as well so it was the size i wanted yep. the walls weren't as high but I think I sent you guys pictures. Yeah, yeah. It was. I took a few days setting it up, and it was working well. And I was just playing around with it. It's a cheap sled, so you don't have to worry as much. It's not. Yeah. Oh God! If I mess this up, I'm down. I'm out three hundred bucks. Yeah. So it gives you a little freedom, and you can add on your own modifications. I drilled holes for lashing points. That's what I was gonna mention. Added some washers to, to spread out the weight a little more. Yeah, yeah. I tried using a little flex seal to give it a little more structural integrity. You need a lot of flex seal. <laughs> That's the problem I found. I just use it on the inside. I don't want to put it on the bottom for more abrasion or anything like that. But I. Mm. Find, Oh, it would be like a truck bed liner kind of thing like that. But then, then that just starts adding more. You pay 15, 16 bucks for just a single can. And I went through one can and one coat pretty much. Oh, so unless you're going to go start getting at the paint can size, things of flex seal, I wouldn't <laughs> recommend it started flaking off after the first winter yeah. trip I did with it. But I really liked the sled itself and how I was able to configure it, add lashing points, where the handles normally would be yeah yeah add a couple more lashing points at the back so i can crisscross it all the way through just mm. with a daisy chain with some paracord and then at the front drilling a couple more holes and just using another paracord system through the pvc pipes a little bit of hose length attached on the ends with some hose clamps with just a loop of paracord sticking out 
and then I could loop those through the holes and then just connect them with a thing of uh, nylon webbing. Mm. So that was a really nice one. It's nice and silent. It's a really easy configuration, so you don't have to worry about as many parts going going wrong going wrong yeah. and having to replace things. I mean, like, well, my pole snapped off, and I have no other option here. I used hardware because there's way more hardcore options like using U-bolts and yeah. I-bolts and using tie-end rods that are normally used in cars and go-karts. Totally. So it's like a ball bearing that swivels around. You put it through. You get your little carriage system, your little angle. Put a quarter-inch pin through that. Put that through your tie-end rod. Wow. So that's I've actually bought all the pieces to start configuring that on one of my sleds because that's what there's a company called website skipulk.com mm. that sells kits of yeah, the pieces yeah. so for a, it's a hundred bucks though to 150 bucks just for this hardware to attach everything and i think they even give you some fiberglass poles right. i haven't checked out their website in a little while but i know they can set you up with all the hardware needed and all you need to do is drill some holes and then attach it to the front of your sled and you're good to go cool so that's a lot of things to think about, but there's a lot more things to go wrong. I feel with all the nuts and bolts and washers That's what I'm leaning towards, yeah. and everything. So if one of those snaps off, or if you lose a piece of it, if you lose one of your linchpins, you forget to Loctite one of the bolts or something. Yeah. So there's a lot to go wrong. You can carry some spare pieces and stuff in your emergency kit, but mm -hmm. I like the simplicity of the paracord that I had with the PVC and the hose pieces and everything just looped through in the front, crisscrossed, and attached together with a piece of nylon webbing. Totally. So that, that worked perfect. And it came in, all the pieces cost me less than 50 bucks. Excellent. So that's a good good price for that kind of thing. I didn't, I didn't add fins or anything on the bottom. I was mostly traveling on lakes and just going on some basic hills and everything, mm -hmm. so I didn't have to traverse and switch back on a hill or anything so in the future it's with these things you can add more to it as you go along they're more modular yeah they're a lot more modular than a toboggan i can say that mm -hmm. okay so having that all set up there are some downsides to getting a cheaper option for a sled you're gonna have thinner plastic i'm a little worried about if i ever went over rocks or anything mm -hmm. that it could punch a hole or create a big long stretch fracture the length of the sled mm. so when you do get something like a pelican you are going to get a thicker grade thicker gauge of plastic on that better quality too yep. these are ones that kids just take to your local toboggan hill and beat them up and yeah. if they crack they crack you buy a new one sort of sure. thing so there are some downsides the cheaper you go so keep in mind in that if you wanted to go hardcore add some add a layer of fiberglass but just you might as well size Upgrade. up to a better sled at that point so yeah there's always a trade-off in doing your own homework <laughs> you might make a decent little sled for an okay price but you could have bought something ready to go and saved 200 hours of work on this in your spare time <laughs> totally so yeah there's there's the pelicans there's the paris I have two of those right now that I'm going to start working on. Mm. I've been gathering all the needed parts. So I have my three pulks 
We can do a little battle between them and Ooh. everything, as well as with the toboggans. Even thinking about just carving out one of those toboggans and steaming and bending kind of things. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of things. I like what I like about my the pulk systems. There's a lot of pulling options yeah. besides the poles and the paracord carabiners and everything you can get some decent options you can get just like a nice waist belt mm-hmm. just for carrying around the waist i th- there's a lot of people they they can use weight weight belts that you've got out there the one that i have is i think it might be f- for part of a fall arrest system hmm so it's heavy duty riveted grommeted everything and it's got two big metal loops on the side which i recognize from all my times using fall arrest systems Mm -hmm. through my various jobs and it's got a nice heavy duty it's not a buckle but it's just the two prongs oh yeah, yeah and just grommets all the way through it so you set it to whatever size so it has a lot of adjustability in that sense it's very heavy weight so you're not going to worry about ripping it or fraying any of it Mm. and it spreads out the weight nicely around you it's nice and thick as well and it's low compared like people who are pulling it over their shoulder that low waist gives you a little bit more control so you can also you're not holding anything in your hands or around there. So you can use also just hiking poles or ski poles or, ski poles or anything yeah. with you too. If you're skiing with it, it's nice. It's out of your way. It's around your waist. Or let's say if you're trying to get up one of those hills, it's brushy and stuff. You now have the ability to grab for anchor points and haul yourself rather than yeah. trying to have to do that with one hand and kind of hold onto that rope around yeah. your neck and shoulder with the other one. Mm-hmm. I really dig that idea of the waist belt idea. There's waist belts, and I've also seen ones where you can have some straps that come around over around your waist and over your shoulders. Yeah. So it's like having it attached to a backpack. I've seen people try to attach them to backpacks, but it's not as close and snug a fit. So it ends up kind of pulling around, shifting around mm-hmm. a lot more around the waist belt of your backpack. And it risks ruining the backpack rather than just a belt system. I've seen people go into stores and they ask about it. And then you can just get the waist belt system that they sell with like Osprey and Savota and all the other companies, backpack companies. They might sell the waist straps individually. So you could possibly configure something for yourself like that. I like the one and even Molly systems that there's gun belts and stuff for military style gun belts with just Molly webbing all around it. And you can just pick it out the sides. I prefer the part that attaches to your side of your waist. Some people do it right in the middle of the back. The very back. Yeah. But then the poles have a tendency to dig right into your back when they're going downhill or anything. Yeah. And just springing. Like the, the Almost pieces. like they're nudging you. Exactly. Going down the hill. Stab you in the back the whole time. <laughs> it's like a bony down. elbow every time. So it's nice at the sides. They can come out a little bit and have a little workability and poke out a little bit, but they're not poking straight into your back or anything. Yeah, yeah. I like that idea. Mm-hmm. And I've seen people even do those with set up linchpin systems mm. where they have that and an eye bolt and they attach it. Or else you can just attach a couple carabiners to your poles with the paracord coming through and then just clip them on either through the molly webbing or through any other hardware that might be there, like on that one mm-hmm. worker's belt that I've got. Yeah, yeah, on the, so, on the metal loops. Mm-hmm. 
Clever. So there's lots of options that way. Having either the full strap harness system, waist belt, mm -hmm. or else, because then I, I see people still just using the typical rope that it came attached to their sleds. And that's fine if you're just going car camping in like places like Cypress Lake sure. in Bruce Peninsula. Sure. You can park a car and then walk into one of their like 200, campsites in the winter when they're yeah. unmaintained and everything. That's the way they prefer you to do it there. So if you're just walking a couple hundred meters, go for it. Yeah. But if you're trying to do a tow expedition or anything like that, yeah. you're moving around, you want something that'll work. Mm -hmm. for a longer time and keep your hands free and especially since the ropes are so low quality that come with these slides yeah i was about to say and the, often it's not like it's a reinforced hole that they're coming through and they're just held on with like a knot yeah so just picture going up part way up that hill <laughs> and then the rope the knot comes through the hole mm -hmm. and it slips off because you build a rope burn around your neck because you're trying to be indiana yeah. jones and carry it over your shoulder Rope burns you, the knot slaps you in the face, and you look back and watch all your stuff go ass over tea kettle down the hill. Just a poly rope that ends up fraying real yeah. quick. And just, yeah. as you see with those yellow poly ropes, they just end up unweaving themselves. And it's just a nightmare. Yeah. So yeah. Even if you're just going to add like a nice 550 paracord or something like that, a piece of webbing, something. Yeah, something that will do the job. Definitely. So, yeah. <clears throat> there's a lot of modifications in that sense for polks and there's also other like features like you can buy from like pelican you can get like pieces of hdpe that can be yeah. like strapped to the, the bottom systems give you that there's uh there's covers like uh, when we were up with kylan and dave they actually use what we often refer to as the mud, uh, the, the camp mud train mm -hmm. to transport all the gear from the car drop off to the uh from the car spot, from the car parking area, the three, four kilometers back to their actual property where their house is, mm -hmm. they use these bigger, like you're saying, the big ski style or skidoo style uh, polks that have the big harnesses and hooks up to the snowmobile and you can even hook up to each other. So you got like this little train. Ours is a little bit more janky when we do it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it anyways. It's got a nice big Trek 75. Yeah, we're using like Trek, Trek 50s 60s. and 60s <laughs> with like a couple PVC pipes and some mm -hmm. carabiners and like, let's see if it holds up. Mm -hmm. And then, but with their systems, they even have these covers yeah. that go over and actually like are like bungee corded around like to, like a shock strap the way i would compare them to is if you've ever been sea kayaking and they have the yeah, skirts yeah it's like a skirt so or like a bungee kayak. around the side that will fit over a lip mm -hmm. that is the edge of the sleds and it'll cover it up so if you don't want to have to worry about lashing and webbing systems then that's a nice easy one to do just throw your gear in strap it over mm -hmm. slap it on done uh, it's also good for like if you are using a snow machine or you're going through areas slush kick up it's yeah. keeping your stuff dry it's a nice little kind of protection uh extra layer because again you want to keep that gear as dry as possible yeah it's a nice ready to go easy to buy the only way i could see it become an issue is clearance i think they're mostly made to work pretty close to flush mm -hmm. with the top of the sled so if you're overpacking it and you're going nudge off the corner. six to eight inches above that maybe it won't conform. wrap around and conform enough and if it ever tips over it might just pop off and have everything just pull sure. right out so it might be easier to work with two together and make sure everything's tied on on the inside and then put that over top 
Mm-hmm. So just and again, things to think about. And there's like, as we've said multiple times, it's such a modular system. I love the fact that just like a Rubbermaid or a, a good bucket, that lip that's there. Yeah. That allows you to drill holes and put any kind of fixtures you need in. Uh, I've done it multiple times where I just drilled half a dozen holes down the sides and ran cord through that. Mm-hmm. And then we'd have toggle systems that we could pull over to cinch. And that just kind of kind of became like a webbing yeah. to just contain duffel bags and stuff inside or mm-hmm. firewood and, and not putting a lot of expense into it. But you can also go as far as to put in like straps and stuff that buckle together and cinch straps. You can go really, really like, again, I think the biggest pro to me of a pulk is how modular they can be and how creative you can be with them. Whereas toboggans, it's a flat board with a, with a prow on it. There, there's only so many ways you can fit things and contort things to fit in there perfectly and do things to it, to change things. A, a Polk seems to have a lot more options available. I think that's a really options good way to look and at forgiveness it. Mm-hmm. and everything. You can take a lot of the hardware you have sitting around your workshop at home and put something together. I've seen work. so many videos of people making things slightly different each way with the same use in the end mm. it just it's to what you have and what works for you even a good video i've seen was from dave williams norseman yep at makers movement he has his own video and he uses oh god i can't even remember what those little i've seen them on keychains a lot but you even has like the little pull down opens it up and then you can clip it on and then it just sticks right to it. I can't remember oh, the hardware. Little clamp people. things. It's just a clip. Oh, we shouldn't even. We've we've ruined this segment. <laughs> we'll move forward. We'll move forward. We'll move forward. <laughs> there's there's a lot of like options. that where you can actually just clip it on, tie that off, have that at the inner poles. So even more people use U bolts and mm-hmm. washers and pins and everything. You can have something like that, or else you can just have paracord. That then yeah. you just string a piece of webbing through the loops and then it holds everything together. Totally. And I find the more you can spread out the weight, you don't want to have it even with just the ropes that come with it. They're just in one little hole mm-hmm. and it's pulling all that pressure at one spread point. It out. So if you're pulling it by just two points, you're and you're having a hundred pounds of gear, that's fifty pounds per hole. Per hole kind of thing. And then when you work out PSI even more just with the surface area and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So add the fact that there may be a variable where you're twisting or you're going up a hill and only one side's taking all that pressure. Mm -hmm. Now you got hundred PSI or whatever it may be on that one hole Mm -hmm. and it's going to tear through. It's a real pain. Spread out the weight, drill multiple holes, weave the cord through them and don't even use it like a regular knot. There's options of like putting on like a like a an eyelet on the end and clipping that mm-hmm. through to something. Or some people will run it all the way around into one continuous loop through the whole pulk's lip. And now you've got one solid rope with no knots that can just tear through so it can actually shift and move and actually have kind of some give to it. Mm-hmm. There's so many different options with a pulk. That just makes them so nice. You can brace it with just some ankle iron. Sure. Just little plates and drill holes with your drill press or something. Totally. And then just screw through, add some washers and some nuts, and you're good to go. Mm-hmm. Add some bolts. So those are some nice ways to really reinforce it. It adds more weight. It's going to be more pieces to lose, like we were talking about yeah. before. It's going to be a little harder to 
you never know what piece is going to break or snap and it might just rip the whole corner off your sled mm. if you have too cheap of a sled that doesn't really have that great yeah. thickness of plastics so totally there's downsides to everything but they can also pay off well in the long run so our, our two biggest takeaways on the pulk that i'm noticing is like they're durable and affordable while also being really modular they're they're ones you can beat up a little bit more than i would recommend a toboggan being beat up. even though a toboggan is made of tougher plastics it's the carrying system that's the concern there whereas with a with a pulk man you can practically throw it off a hill and it'll usually come out okay at the bottom with your gear and at the same time it's you've got so many options available are there any other real big winning points for you when it comes down I think to the they're also more forgivable with the packing like we talked yeah. about the toboggan yeah. it's got those high walls even just any wall somewhat is better mm -hmm. it just holds everything in you just got to worry about how every your weight distribution and everything totally. but you don't have to worry about everything sagging out the sides really yeah once you tie it down, you strap it in, it's locked in there. As we said, so, idiot proof in a lot of ways. You yeah. can ice fishermen frequently just throw everything in out like right out of the tr uh, trunk of their truck or bed or their truck mm -hmm. or the trunk of their car and don't care. And they just tow it off and it's not balanced. It's not well weighted. It's not anything, but they don't care. They just go out on the ice and it'll hold it all in mm -hmm. and it'll hold everything from your bucket that you're going to be sitting on and keeping your bait in to your fishing rods and all the sharp things. That's the other thing that, like I said earlier, when we're like cutting wood, it's really nice to be able to have like that axe. You may not have a guard for that axe because you've lost it in the snow or something, or you just didn't have a guard or a mask for it. Throwing in the bottom of that sled, the likelihood of it flying off and getting lost in the snow is low with a pulk yeah. that's got good walls on it. And it's not going to get torn up and cut a bunch of the strings that hold the whole toboggan together because it's a pulk. Mm -hmm. It's it's durable. It's tough. It's kind of a set and forget it kind of tool. Yeah. As we've said a couple of times, I'm idiot proof. Maybe not bomb proof 100%, but it's definitely idiot proof to some degree. Yeah. And uh, man, they just, again, like you can flip them over. Now you've got a surface to work on that's pretty tough. Mm -hmm. So if you got to do some meal prep, you can put a cutting board on there or something. You can put a piece of wood on there. It's I've used them as a sawhorse. It's easy to haul wood yeah. in them too. You're not going to have pieces of wood flying off mm -hmm. either side as you're walking away from where you found that yeah. dead standing tree or anything like that. Yeah, so, if you use your toboggan, you really got to tie everything down pretty good or you're yeah. coming back with a half of what you wanted. So it's easy just to toss a quarter cord of wood in there. Yeah, and a bunch of kindling if need be. Pull it Yeah, and do your thing. One and thing it, I'd also recommend is with the PVC pipes is to crisscross them. Mm-hmm. Is because then you don't have those issues like you're talking about. You're taking a sharp corner and it's just pulling on the one corner. It'll yeah. always pull the sled each corner. Yeah, countered. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's a good way to do it. So they it shouldn't clear. be straight out from the sled to you. They should be an X. Just yeah. so everyone's clear what Ryan's saying there. The, mm -hmm. the, the, the struts or your braces coming from the, from the sled to you should be crossed over each other. And you can... Put a simple Velcro strap to hold them together so they're not click clacking off each other totally. and moving around too much. I've seen people so, just duct tape them. Duct tape yeah. them, some parachute cord. Yeah. There's even like those weird like cross pipe couplers that some people will even just yeah. glue them together. I'd rather just use one continuous piece of PVC mm -hmm. instead of adding possible joints that can separate yeah. if you don't glue it right. But anything works if you do it right. If you if you strap everything down good. And PVC wise, all you really need is half inch PVC. Oh yeah, that's all you need. It has the right amount of flexibility and strength. Strength, 
and it's not gonna it's just gonna bend on you mm -hmm. it's gonna give you some flexibility but it's not likely to snap mm -hmm. and it's not too big and bulky and heavy and totally. everything like that so half inch i would say is the max yeah, you don't have to go to no go. one and a quarter inch <laughs> mm -hmm. Just picture the weight on that. Oh my god! You just, especially if you just got like paracord going through it. Just feels like it's just gonna be sagging and bouncing around, <laughs> clacking against each other. Exactly. Oh my god, that'd be such a pain in the butt. All that energy just being wasted behind you. But yeah, um, so hulks have a lot of values. Where are some places where there's like they they aren't necessarily like pristinely perfect for? Uh, they're they're not as flexible as a toboggan. Yeah, they so tippier. They're, they're not gonna maintain contact mm -hmm. with uneven ground as much and they might i think it lures you also in a false sense of security when you are idiot proofing your packing and just yeah. tossing everything in if you are traversing yeah. a hillside you might have put too much weight too high you don't have that low center of gravity especially off to the right or the left because you got a wood stove so long and a tent so long they're going to be put off to one side or the other if you don't balance it well yeah so due to the walls it's not going to bend and twist mm -hmm. like a toboggan will mm -hmm. so it's not going to maintain contact all the time so you might just all of a sudden flip over on its side sort of thing in that sense so yeah it's not the best in that though it is heavier than a toboggan yep. typically more material everything they also aren't typically as long yeah as a toboggan and a little wider so i've mostly found them in five six feet at most for anything like that you're not gonna get an eight to ten foot pelican sled <laughs> not one that's made for pulling with a like human that. usually being maybe pulled mm -hmm. by a, a skidoo or an atv or something you might find those but i and don't at the same time it's interchangeable mm -hmm. because the longer, just like a canoe, the longer it is, the better it'll track, the better it'll be in a straight line, the more flotation it will give. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if you're trying to weave your way through trees and going a little bushwhacking, mm -hmm. smaller sled, and even if you're doing a little day trip and you just want a 45 inch jet sled, yeah. then that'll be a little easier too. And it's just a small light sled, easy to go. Typically, I see is the 60-inch models. Mm -hmm. It's big enough to get everything you want in there, but also small enough that it's not a hulking behemoth that you're yeah. pulling behind you. Totally. Anything bigger than that, you're getting thicker, beefier sleds that are made to be pulled purposely by snowmobiles yeah. and ATVs. And they're going to be thicker, heavier, longer, mm -hmm. usually wider as well. Really wide. I think that's also one of the things about... The polks, they tend to be wider. Yeah, so 18, can, 20 inches. They can be a little more of a snowplow, yeah. depending on where you are and the style of model yeah. and everything. If it ha doesn't have enough of aggressive nose on there, it's not going to glide right over top of the snow. Mm -hmm. So, And that's that problem with those shallower ones, too, is if you're going through real deep powder, it can kind of become almost like a snow shovel. Yeah. Catching if you don't have a good track made by your own footsteps. That's why I was surprised about my $25 sled that I made. Well, because so, that was probably floating on the surface a little bit better was, than the heavy ones. It's only about four or five inches deep. Yeah. But it floated right on top, especially with the little trail I made with my snowshoes there. It was fitting snugly right in nice. between that little track that I was Excellent. building. So it was surprising. I was a little worried that the lip might dig in a little more, but... 
it pulled everything just glided right over top of any beautiful loose powder snow so excellent it was good i liked it i think also like we talked about before the wear and tear of it you can get the extra tracks mm -hmm. that are made of an hdpe Mm -hmm. that you just screw into the bottom of your sled totally you can get that it saves a lot of wear and tear because it yeah. gives you that extra quarters especially if you're pulling it on ice mm -hmm. you're not getting as much friction on that totally and wear so and then yeah width i'd say those things are the downsides to them mm -hmm. but even if you get something like a scow from the military it's it's more dish shaped i'd say kind of bowl cups yeah it's a little rounder yeah it kind of goes to a central round it's rounded rather than just straight up walls flat bottom yeah it's more just like a saucer yeah it's kind of like the like i think the best way for like those who are into boats and stuff to understand this analogy like the classic like pelican pulks are more like a english punt with that real flat bottom like a john boat mm -hmm. whereas that is like the the scow is a little bit closer to like your classic outboard motor boat yeah. it's got a little bit more uh, of a curve to it, a little bit more aquadynamic hydrodynamic everyone would describe that it's typically what you find on arctic expeditions yeah is that if it's heavy duty it's not going to break on you yeah generally made of fiberglass so it's going to be nice and sturdy they can't even be pulled by dogs like yeah. i've seen them pulled by uh, by dog teams before and they normally have built-in bags canvas yeah. bags that you just pretty much load everything in cinch that over top or zipper whatever whatever they, system they use whatever system they use and it's all integrated into the sled so it's a nice one piece thing and like i said that ski hills tend to buy the off of the military after decommission that you can even pull someone in it if you need to in an emergency situation yes you're the only first responder in sight nobody can get to you there's no way to get you can put them in there they tend to be a little longer and mm -hmm. everything so they're nice search and rescue sleds again i my only experience then was when i was in the cadets we were doing exactly those like projects or those like uh, training exercises where you were pulling people behind you for injury training like oh they got a broken leg got to set yeah. the bone and brace that and now we got to pull them and you, you feel like a dog team pulling this person behind you after a while they always joke like mush mush <laughs> and it, but they are very very good at tracking through the snow i, yeah. I really do like the scows they are heavy they are not they're not light yeah. and but they are also a lot more durable and you mm -hmm. can get a little bit more aggressive and be a little bit more bold yeah. with how you use them but they do weigh a bit and they do cost quite a bit and they're not easy to find as you said or even the sizes like we're saying small little day trip if you're walking around your property or land mm. little 45 inch sled sure multi-day take a 60 kind of thing like that so there's always a use for different sizes trade-offs mm -hmm. back country versus front country totally. all those sorts of things so and both both sleds depend on the type of quality of snow they can both go through fairly deep snow mm -hmm. toboggans i personally find are better on I'd, I'd say packing snow that's still kind of powdery like what you expect to see up in the boreal around minus 30. Mm -hmm. uh, pulks i find like after a certain depth they kind of start to plow more yeah. but that's my only experience with that like that's my that's only my experience in my opinion 
Um, we were actually kind of saying the same thing, but disagreeing earlier about that before we started recording. Talking about like mm -hmm. the 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 toboggans seem to do better on the rougher, harder surfaces, and the tobog and the, the polks do a little bit better in the softer snow from how they're designed with the tracks and everything on them. Yeah, sometimes I feel like the polks and higher walls tend to turn it into more of a boat. Yep. To kind of go through nice powder, but if you're wearing snowshoes as is, you're already packing it down just enough mm -hmm. to get a more solid surface behind you so what you're walking through in front isn't exactly what the sleds having to deal with so exactly i think it depends on the ergonomics of the sled the design mm -hmm. the engineering of it whether it'll actually dig right into the snow yeah. and if you're just someone who doesn't have snowshoes and you're going out in your boots and your post hole on your way there it's going to be a lot more difficult yeah. to like pull a sled behind you no matter what it is yep. so it's going to be also digging in behind you. But if you, you're walking, you're grooming the trail for it with your snowshoes. Very true. Very so. true. And again, I think it goes also down to conditions of snow. It's a wet pack, more packable versus like four it's feet good. of ultra fine powder. Yeah. Sleds are going to, and both sleds are going to struggle in that stuff. Yeah. Both sleds are going to have their detriments in that stuff. We're not, again, no one sled system is best. That's, mm -hmm. I want to get very clear on this episode that, you can have a toboggan and a pulp or multiple pulps and multiple types of toboggans and still have use for all of them. They'd all be having their value in your kit, in your in your tool shed or wherever you store them. And that's the thing. There's so much to talk about. We always are like, well, this will take an hour. And then we end up talking for three hours about tents and sleds yep. and canoes. Yep. And for a reason. Anything we talk about, there's so much to take into consideration when choosing these two pieces of equipment oh, that yeah. it's not a one size fits all sort of situation there's a lot of factors that go in that make it right for the right person sort of thing so Definitely. that's why my always biggest recommendation is go try things out go try the different methods totally. before you commit totally. it's dating yeah. you're trying out everything you're seeing what you like and what works for you so totally date your equipment before you commit for a long term <laughs> so. figure what they like figure what they don't like yeah understand what, what their what their set offs are what are you looking for <laughs> and that is what you'll find yeah we need to create an e-harmony a hinge a tinder for camping equipment <laughs> i guess that's what co rental companies are <laughs> But <laughs> this is, don't steal this idea, guys. We just thought about this. On this the is our app. <laughs> this is my app. That we, Ryan Ryan needs to make this app so he can make the money I'm so we can buy more gear. I'm going to you with the equipment. And you're going to try it out for a bit. And on the first try, you might be like blown away. This is the best thing that's ever marry happened this. to me. I'm going to marry this sled. So we're getting wacky now. Oh, this is what happens after a few hours of recording, no matter what episode it is. So, yeah, look into those. Look into the toboggans. Look into the pulks. Look into your smitty sleds. And that's where, like, the last kind of category that we can kind of talk about briefly. It's, again, you have your sleighs. The, the classic, like, what we picture for Christmas time. And the, the classic, Comitic, like, little red sleigh. Comatics. There, there's so many different variables. And they're all great. Dog sleds immediately fit this category because you've got the two classic runners on them. And then... You've got a box or conveyance system inside that you can put things in or a person. Uh, kick sleds are in this list as well. Like the Dick, the classic Dick Prennicky where he took a bunch of fir or pine saplings and 
tacked and nailed them all together into a push sled or kicker sled that he could take out to get food and wood. Even I feel like these other sleds are more like non-weekend warrior, non-expedition. Yeah. Yeah. They're day-to-day life yeah. sort of things. People living north, north. Up in the trap there are people lines. People using these all the time, going to the trap line, mm-hmm. getting food. Fetching food, water. Getting water, getting more firewood for their little off-grid cabin. These are like, so this, I, I would look at like, a pol- let's say a polk is like uh, an overlander and a toboggan is like a long haul freighter. I would put the classic like ski sleds, kick sleds, dog sleds, kind of more in like the, the farm pickup truck, the thing you're going to be using to, to haul, to move around your day-to-day chores, your life, uh, your livelihood. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other ones are what you use when you go on those kinds of trips, your long haul trucks, your long haul vehicles, or your overlanders. Yeah. Like those kinds of like a pins could be a polk yeah. or a, 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 what are those? The Volkswagen Iltises could be like a polk. Whereas your minivan that's set up with good fuel economy and everything else is kind of like your freighter toboggan. If you want to think of it that way and they're interchangeable, they could both be the same thing. Whereas a sleigh dog sled common tick, that's like, it's like commercial grade equipment. Yeah. Yeah. You're freighting. It's, it's your industrial. Food yeah. It's, it's it's more robust materials. You're making them out of wood and metal, and they're often a lot heavier. But they're made to be heavier because you're moving heavier things. You're moving by s- snowmobiles, sled, uh, dogs, dog sled teams. So behind trucks, even I've seen them. Heavy behind... duty, they can carry more. Yeah, but they can take a beating. Yeah, they can like carry a lot. You're <laughs> you're carrying in months of supplies at a time. Yeah, you're strapping it to this. You don't want this to snap. It's not some little thin piece of plastics. So. You'll see a comma take a proper like eight like eighteen foot by like three foot two foot wide comma tick up in Nunavut, Northwest Territories, the Yukon, up in the High Arctic, Alaska as well behind a snowmobile that's like an 800 cc snowmobile and it's got like two or three caribou each of them weighing like 300 250 to 300 pounds and they're bringing their 20 foot diameter tp with all the yeah, holes and everything, everything on that like it's a, it's a freighter they're it's, going it's out hunting for weeks if not months time, if not months at a time sort like of thing. it's made for that kind of stuff it's not meant to be pulled behind a person it's life below zero type stuff exactly exactly <laughs> Like you, you go visit the Gwich'in, you go visit the Klitsch'o, you visit the the Inuit uh, Mashkeguak. These are the vessels you would be seeing. And if you have dog sled teams, same concept. That dog sled is a freighter system. Like you look at that movie Togo, and or was it Togo and Balto? Are those the two movies? There's the yeah, they're they're all so similarly named. Yeah, so well, they're from the same sled team. They're yeah. from they're two dogs from the same team, so it makes One's sense. Willem Dafoe. <laughs> and made me cry a lot because it was a live action and they it was a it was a the winter after my dog passed away so i was very like still emotionally raw i started watching this movie and the dog starts whimpering from injuries that may kill it i just start going i can't do this but while sushi's living the best life just lounging right next she's to us right beside us on a round like lofty chair her legs chair stretched out in front five of five times the size she is she's just living this once was a wolf <laughs> But yeah, like you got these sled teams and they're, they're, they're hardworking teams with those sleds that are designed for, they're, they're both flexible. Cause especially for like trekking, like the tourism industry, dog sleds are very different from like the freighter dog sleds, just like a, like a touring lake touring or lake tripping canoe is going to be very different from a freighter canoe. Mm-hmm. 
These sleds can be very light, very mobile, very flexible, so they can take a lot of speed and they can move around positions. You compare that to an Iditarod sled, very, very different. And you compare that to like the freighter Comatics and everything up north. It was rigid, yeah, heavy solid. duty, made with the best hardware and made out of two by sixes and two by fours. Yeah, that have like, like tin that. for the runners. Like they put yeah. a strapping on it to make sure it's completely frictionless, but, but also they also put a strip of HTPE. That's on the more the modern interpretations. Too, yeah. So, yeah, anything that can be added to that to make life easier. I think the coolest one I ever saw was two rolled up animal hides that were soaked in water and frozen to be the runners. Yeah. And then the uh, the Inuk man strapped across frozen animal legs and bones and fish. And that was the body of the Comatic. Okay. And he hauled that behind because that's all he had. There was no wood. Mm-hmm. And he had to build a Comatic to move his gear out of there because he yeah. had just finished hunting. Okay. And I, it was like, that's how creative people can get with these things. It's just simply two runners and a body on top of it. Mm-hmm. That's a sled. That's a sleigh. That's that's what it is. It can be a dog sled, a Comatic. Um the classic kick sleds, skajoring sleds, or whatever they're called, little kick sleds that are like one or two dogs on. Yeah. There, there's so many different systems. Most of them do require an animal to pull them. They're often too bulky or heavy for a person per se. They're, again, these are your freighting vessels. These are what you'd use if you're living life below zero, as Ryan said. And I think everything in general just shows off the ingenuity of the people who live in these situations people have the hobbies like we do mm-hmm. and the lifestyles that er- everyone in this area of expertise has mm-hmm. so it's just even that's one of the podcasts i want to do going up is the ingenuity yeah. of because that's i think that's what everyone here is creative in their own way hell yeah They're, we're always everyone's always thinking about different ways to do things and really Mm-hmm. We love working with our hands. We love exploring and we love seeing what we can come up with next to get us in those areas that we love. So totally. That's one totally. of the things I love about this whole area. <laughs> it allows you to really explore humanity. Put a few bushcrafters in a room and we're always just bouncing ideas off. How do you do this? <laughs> what would you do in this situation? Yeah, it's totally the case, man. And it's it's a good subject. I think that is what bushcraft is at the end of the day. It's just people exploring we, with technology what we can create. We love running into the woods like we did when we were kids, building shelters, yep. brainstorming the best tree fort possible, and mm-hmm. making our little piece of our own kingdom and everything. Be our so, own miniature versions of Jeremiah Johnson. Yeah, we're, we're doing everything ourselves and thinking about how we can make it better. You can even say it's the original STEM, like science, technology, etc. Mm-hmm. Like you could, you could definitely say that. It's, There's lots of engineering in it and mm-hmm. everything. And, and you got physics in there and a bunch yeah. of stuff going on. Like it's in mathematics, like man, figuring out the equations to be able to get certain things done. Bushcraft is in a lot of ways uh, yeah. an, an outdoor, the, uh, the, uh, I don't want to say like the thinking man or the common man. I don't want to use those terms, but like the, it's the woods folks stem. People that just love to be in the woods, but they love STEM concepts. Bushcraft immediately fits their fits their lives. It's back to basics, but taking it to the next level. Totally. So I think we're at the end of the episode. I think we've covered, you know, polks and toboggans, pretty good sleighs in general, sleds in general. We could only talk further if we were actually to go in depth and show people yeah, yeah. what we were talking about. I was waving my hands all around this whole time <laughs> while describing things and trying to. It's a challenging thing, yeah. podcast. 
You're just listening to my voice. Yeah. Well, you got the voice for radio and I got the face for radio. So I think we're doing well with the podcast concept, but oh, we, yeah. I can't wait to start getting some YouTube videos out more so people can really see what we're talking about. It'll be really fun that way. I'm ready for this ultimate pulp challenge. Yes. Yeah. That'll be a fun one. Do this. Well, folks, uh, just to reiterate, there is no one way to do this. There is no one only way that works. You can have a toboggan made of wood, a toboggan made of three or four different types of plastics that you make yourself, buy yourself, purchase yourself. Um, you can steal your kid's sled. <laughs> I, for many years, I just took my old like six foot to wooden toboggan that I had since I was like mm. six years old. And that was my winter trekking. Yeah. You had to be real creative with how you loaded it all, yeah. <laughs> but it worked. Uh, you can use a pulk uh, that's made by Canadian, made by uh, different companies for really inexpensive prices. As Brian was saying, you can really, really go low price and low Search budget. Search for utility sleds. It's, yeah. it's pretty much what the blanket term yeah. most uses, utility sled or expedition sled. And there's so many different options in there. You can build sleighs or sleds. You can find different kinds of kick sleds and dog sled designs or buy some. There's so many options. It comes down to what you need it for, how you want to use it. Hopefully this episode helped you get some insight on those subjects and you understand more what to be looking for. Um, and beyond that, hopefully this episode helped inspire you to go out and give you a little bit more uh, incentive to go winter camping. Like you don't have to just carry everything on your back and exhaust yourself. Get that you can, hot tent. Heck yeah. Get that wood stove. Heck yeah. Get out there. Heck yeah see nature from a different angle oh yeah most people stay inside in winter and they're like when is it april like <laughs> when is that coming okay Oof. i'm gonna wait till that and just watch netflix inside mm -hmm. meanwhile i love doing that i oh, love yeah. cutting up with myself and watches netflix but at the same time book of boba fett there's different different angles to see seeing snow-capped valleys oh. and trees and everything it's just chef's kiss beautiful absolutely beautiful so get out there stop wasting your time inside go find a sled grab your kids crazy carpet or something figure it away and just go out and explore the woods enjoy yourself out there thanks for tuning in folks at the end of this i want to say thank you to our patrons so let's get into that and just as always we want to thank our newest members of the patreon as well as all members of patreon in general like renee nolting adam scriven trevor shaw katie patel hunter Choi. These people and many, many more are part of the Dragonfly Nation, helping support us to keep this podcast going, keeping our projects afloat, uh, keeping power on, keeping the internet going so we can record this stuff and put it out there to the world. Feeding sushi so she doesn't go psychotic and cujo and eat us as she adjusts herself on her big round comfy chair. All this and more is because of you amazing folks. And of course, for those who are not aware, but you're a member of Patreon, you may want to go over there now because we're getting ready to announce, we just announced our online course curriculum for patron uh, patreon only so check that all out if you're part of the dragonfly or dragon hunter tiers you can now get ready for monthly multi-hour in person uh, not sorry in, not in person but live streamed live action survival training bushcraft skills and more courses uh, so check those out. And if you're not on Patreon, why aren't you on Patreon? It can only cost you like a dollar, dollar fifty. If you really don't want, if you just want to help us out, dollar, dollar fifty is just fine. That helps keep everything moving. If you want to get even more content, check out those higher tiers. If you're already on Patreon, and you're at the lower tiers. 
go to the upper tiers. You know what? Christmas is over. You got you have you've been saving money all fall for the winter time for Christmas. Christmas is done. You can spend that money. Be more frivolous. This is the perfect way to be frivolous. Throw money at us. Just do it. Just do it. In the words of the great Lord Palpatine, do it. <laughs> Take care, folks. Thanks again.